The cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on the Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens when a young, dumb stud has a dick, and that dick is enormous? Would something of such substantial size, mixed in with a little stamina, be enough to change lives, to change his own? Is Young Man Has a Giant Cock all one needs for a high-concept film pitch? Well, let's find out. Because today we are measuring the merit of Paul Thomas Anderson's 1997 film Boogie Nights. So spread out and get comfortable as we journey through that magical 35mm time known as the golden age of porn, and the literal shot to the face that was the arrival of the 1980s direct-to-video technology. Brought to you by The Joys of Disco, Hard Dicks in Soft Lighting, The Real Mothers of the San Fernando Valley, and The Largest Genital Prosthetic in Hollywood, and of course, our safe word today is 8mm. Anything to add, Benji? So, what I'm trying to tell you, Lundy, is that it takes almost none of the good old American green stuff to make one of these podcasts. I mean, you've got your streaming movie, you got your internet research, you got your iced coffee. Before you turn around, you spent five, six, seven dollars on a podcast. But if you make a good one, there's a very clear end to how much money you can make. Now, how do you keep them on the podcast after they've clicked? with facts and annotation. Now you gotta get them clicking, I get it, but I don't wanna make a podcast where people come in, give a click, hear the theme, and leave before the deep dive ends. It is my dream, it is my goal, it is my idea to make a podcast with trivia and facts that just suck them in. And when they've downloaded that joy sound, they just gotta sit in it, and they can't move until they find out how the podcast ends. You know, when I've made podcasts, I get it, it's just a couple laughs, everybody makes fun of a movie and they talk the fucking brains off. But it is my dream to make a podcast that is true and right and dramatic. Uh, sure. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Thanks! Boy! Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. <laughs> I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. Well. Oh, hi, Mark. Yo, Benji. London. Lundy. Lunginus. Londinium. Ha ha. <laughs> Yeah, there's a porn name. Yeah, long... Longinius Londinium. Yikes. (laughs) That is a mouthful. And it kind of reminds me of the... That whole, like, what's your porn name thing that was going around in... Well, forever, really. But I remember it starting to go around the 90s where it was the name of your first pet and then the street you grew up on or whatever. Yeah, I think mine was... uh, Mine would be Shivers Meadowview. I had a collar named Shivers and I lived in Meadowview Court. So there. See, that works. That that does kind of have a thing. Mm -hmm. Mine just never worked out because depending on whether you're going with the New England address or the Netherlands one, neither one. So it would either be Columbus Muirfield or Columbus Kaisersgrat. (laughs) Neither of them great porn names. I think you could really just take the name of the street and split it up and be what was the name of the street the netherlands street 
That was like Kaiserskratz or something. Kaiserskratz. It's really like the Muirfield one. This Columbus Muirfield is just so unsexy. <laughs> All right, tonight we're going to be performing with Columbus Muirfield. Yeah. Where, where are you going? What are you? What? No, come on, come back. <laughs> Late tonight, as we explore new worlds with Columbus Muirfield. Ah, uh, yes. Those are the, yeah. the horrible porn names that we would have uh, in a world of much better porn names, which is what this movie is. So, London, what brings us here today to talk about Boogie Nights, 1997, Paul Thomas Anderson, as opposed to Paul W.S. Anderson? Very important distinction to make. Yes, which is different from Paul Thomas, the golden age porn star. So, <laughs> all of these are people. They are all things. Yes. And today we... We picked this movie mostly just because we had watched 8mm last week and realized that there's a lot of porn stuff to talk about. So we glossed over the golden age of porn with that one because that was sort of the seedy 90s illicit porn film. Mm. And so this is now the celebration leading up to the downfall. However, it is also in its own right a rather cruel film. And this is for a couple of reasons. Number one, it is a tonal roller coaster of a ride. Ugh. And that tends to be a lot of people's takeaway. Yeah. Also, myself included, find that Boogie Nights is a very palatable, easy to digest movie up until the first tonal shift turn. It's hard to think of, a diff- of another movie that has as much tonal whiplash as Boogie Nights does. I mean, there are some out there, I'm sure, but I think this one is the most extreme version because it gives you so much at the front, and then about, I'd say, 40% of the way through the movie, boom, we are going in a totally different direction. Yeah, and there are those films, right, that almost follow this formula that it seems like we should be used to this idea of that upward climb followed by the crash. This is a typical Hollywood trope. And yet this one does not feel like your typical (laughs) biopic of we're on the rise and now we're going to experience a fall. There's just Mm -hmm. some tonal stuff. So we'll talk about the tonal stuff. There are also multiple storylines. There are so many characters in this. I think the total Anderson gave in the commentary is that there are 80 speaking roles. Good Lord, yeah. About 14 main cast members, and they all have their own storylines. And so we're really interweaving a bunch of different people. And yet, this is not a character-driven film. This is very much an events-based film, a time period-based film. So that can be a little jarring, too, because you think that you're getting all of these character arcs, but then we'll also look at, like, are we really? Because we will find that they all pretty much start and end in the same place that they began, and that was fairly intentional. We also have a curious collection of collage, montage, and editing that makes this film in a lot of its places feel like you're watching a very extended montage. So we'll get these 15, 18 minute montage sequences ostensibly. And that also is going to fuck with the time of this film or the time it's seeming to take. Because this movie actually is only, I'll say only, but only about two and a half hours. I think it's like two hours and 25 Mm -hmm. minutes in the end. But 
it feels like it takes eight hours to watch this film. <laughs> and we've watched a few times now. Yes. It did feel like an all day, just like a vent. Yeah. I don't know, time passed slowly, but it felt like it took forever. You've got the movie itself. You've got the director's commentary. And then there's also a cast commentary, which... I think we'll have some things to say about that cast commentary. <laughs> oh, boy. And then there's a half hour of deleted scenes that you can watch once on their own. And then again with director's commentary. Also on the Blu-ray, there's like the extra, the John C. Riley file. I think the only thing on that Blu-ray I didn't watch was there's a music video uh, called Try by Michael Penn, who did the musical score for this film. That was the only thing I didn't watch. Yeah, I did see that apparently a lot of the actors in Boogie Nights show up in that music video, which is oh. why that music video is included on the DVD. I have not watched that one in a very long time. I was going off of the two-disc special edition DVD set. I didn't have the Blu-ray. Oh, well, you know, I'll tell you what the Blu-ray does not have that I'm pretty sure that DVD set has are the color bars. Do you know what I'm talking about? The color bars where? Okay. This is an Easter egg on that special edition two-disc DVD that had the awesome orange packaging. If you clicked on Setup, you know, it would take you to your sound options. But then if you clicked on Color Bars, you got, you know, just color bars on your TV screen for a little bit. And that's like something that a lot of DVDs were doing back in the day uh, to help you calibrate your screens because most people's screens weren't set up for you know, what the, the film was going for. But if you let that run for about a minute... Suddenly, you're taken to this other deleted scene that is not in the deleted scene section of the movie. What I think is meant to be a costume test of a prosthetic of Dirk erect. Amazing. No, I had not come across that. I will have to go and see if I yeah. can find that, if that is... You think that prosthetic at the end of the movie that's in, in the actual movie is crazy... Good Lord, the thing that they were going to put on uh, Mark Wahlberg for this would have been insane. Spectacular. No, I missed that Easter egg, so I will have to go back and look for it. <laughs> what I did really like, I don't know if they do this on the Blu-ray, but you can choose a scene either by the traditional scene selection or you can go to the music scene selection where you choose where to start based off of where specific songs in the soundtrack oh that start. is definitely not on the blu-ray and that was really cool too so the soundtrack is phenomenal on this and we'll yeah, point oh, that out yeah, along the way too. so many good songs Other in here Things we will be talking about towards the end in our deep dives is that we will be getting into the some more facts about the golden age of porn or porno chic and how that all sort of started and went down and its downfall in the 1980s. Uh, the and then we'll also be looking a little bit at John Holmes, the real life porn star that inspired Mark Wahlberg's character in Boogie Nights. Mm -hmm. Probably some other stuff too, but that's going to be the major stuff. All right. So uh, basically this is the story about a guy who has a big dick and he had a good time, then he didn't have a good time, and then he kind of had a good time. That's basically yeah. the movie. So that's, that's going to be one of the lightning summaries. <laughs> the other one is going to be, yes, about a young man who gets sucked up into the porn production world in 1977 is when he's going to enter the scene. He's going to have a few really great years, and then we're going to see the downfall that befalls not only him, but the porn industry in general as we hit the 1980s direct-to-video technology. 
And that is essentially the concept of this near three-hour film. That's the long and the long of it. What is the best thing about this movie, first of all? There is a lot I thought about. You know, you can talk about the cast, the soundtrack, the lighting. But I think all of those things come together into what I really feel is the magic trick of this movie. And that is making the 70s look as beautiful as this movie does. Because the 70s, broadly speaking here, were an ugly decade. Every time you go back and you watch a movie from the 70s or a television show from back then, you think to yourself, okay, was the whole world brown? What the fuck is going on? What Did they not have other colors in the 70s? Why is everything just brown and orange? Yeah, they did like to put those kind of like muddled lens filters all over everything. There are certain kind of temperature lights that are used in, in 70s stuff. But yeah, and, and with an undersaturated quality. So mm. I get you. Yeah, the 70s look a lot better than the 80s in this film, which is saying something. <laughs> what is the worst thing about this film? Oddly that it was not made today. I say this because one of the things that Paul Thomas Anderson talks about in the commentary in the making of the film is that his decree to the studio, to New Line Cinema, was this movie's going to be three hours long and it's going to be NC-17. And they said, okay, okay, look, man, we, we get you want to make it a long epic. That's cool. But if you make it NC-17, we can't sell this thing at Blockbuster. We got to be able to make some like re video return money on this thing. And he dialed back on that and they got an R rating and it was all good. But if this movie were made today, that restriction would not be there. And he could have made anything he wanted to to take us into a deep dive into the world of pornography that you probably do need to do something that is NC-17 rated. So, yeah, I think in a way that is like the, the worst thing I could say about the movie is that it was not made in the right time period. Yeah, so in particular, the crazy thing is, is this is going to come out two years after Showgirls, and the impact Showgirls had on Boogie Nights is sort of astounding just because... Showgirls had just become this cautionary tale of <laughs> shooting a major epic that was NC-17 and involved sex work and the sex industry. And it had failed so spectacularly to critics that had ruined so many people's careers that people were very hesitant to do this film, including Mark Wahlberg initially has spoken at length how he he was doing his Calvin Klein modeling. He was worried that the director just wanted him because he thought he would take off his clothes. <laughs> and he cited showgirls specifically as his fear for doing this movie because he was not super well established yet as an actor and he didn't want what happened to Elizabeth Berkeley to happen to him. So once again, poor Elizabeth Berkley. Uh, but yeah, and the studios were like, we can't let you do NC-17. Like, look what happened to Showgirls. So <laughs> poor Showgirls really yeah, like set up a lot of stuff for the films that came after it and is reflective of this is once again a world that doesn't handle porn and sex very well at the time. I do think I... I agree that the best thing about this film is its setting, it's its production, this capturing of a certain type of essence of a very specific moment in time. And that makes it also kind of the worst thing 
that you get to continue to watch and see that golden moment end. Uh, yes. <laughs> I have always just liked the first, I mean, there is something really poignant about following it through to its conclusion. And I do like that it keeps going into like a middling place too, that yeah. it doesn't just end on like depression either. But <laughs> yeah, the tonal shifts are the worst thing about this movie, but they're also analytically kind of the most interesting at the same time. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. On that that note, let's get into this. So we open in a really cool way. We open, as all movies should open, with Louis Guzman. Yes. Who apparently is a good friend of Paul Thomas Anderson's. And Anderson's just like, I just wanted to get him in this movie in any way I could. And we're like, we're going to open with you, man. (laughs) Here, he's in Boogie Nights, owner of the club. I assume the name of the club is just Boogie Nights, which is fun to me i love that the title of this film is like the physical neon lights of that club just pow like right open loud ready to go and in a beautiful opening oneer or you know long shot that like lasts for a very long time with no cuts we have the camera follow jack corner and amber waves played by burt reynolds and julianne Moore, respectively into the club we meet a whole bunch of characters really quick we meet Buck, played by Don Cheadle. We meet Reed, played by John C. Riley. We meet Becky Barnett, who's Nicole Ari Parker. That is her name. I knew that name off the top of my head without having to look it up or have someone else look it up. We meet all of them. We get a little backstory that Buck has a weird fashion thing going on. We move around. We get to the t- like Jack and Amber's table, where Roller Girl, played by Heather Graham, shows up. She comes by, they chat for a little bit, and then the camera ends on our story's protagonist, Eddie Adams, played by Mark Wahlberg. Apparently, the original casting was going to be Leo DiCaprio, but he had to make a movie about some boat that sinks, so he couldn't do this. Yeah, well, I guess he had to choose. He had to make a choice between Boogie Nights and Titanic, and he did choose Titanic. DiCaprio, you hack. Good lord. It worked out. But then he did also, I guess, recommend Marky Mark for this role because they had both just worked together on Basketball Diaries. They weren't in a posse of any sort together, were they? I I don't think Marky Mark was part of the Pussy Posse. As far as I know, I don't believe he was an avid member, but I don't know that for sure. Do you? Um, I mean, I know he had a bunch and they were funky. (laughs) But I don't think he was in a posse. So, yeah, so DiCaprio had his pussy posse, and Mark Wahlberg had the funky bunch, and I don't know if they intersected a lot socially. I think they were very different, functionally speaking, though. But somehow, Mark Mark did get recommended for this film through Leonardo DiCaprio. And I do think it worked out very well. I have trouble picturing Leo DiCaprio, like, in this role, honestly. I don't. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Not 1997 Leonardo DiCaprio. Now it's like, eh, whatever. But early DiCaprio, I, I could I could see it in a weird sort of way. But Joaquin Phoenix, I guess, also was offered this part, and he turned it down. Joaquin cause... Phoenix, you say? Yes. Joaquin Phoenix. Wa- is that his name? Joaquin Phoenix? Yes. Yes. Yes, that is his name. So Joaquin Phoenix. He did not uh, feel comfortable with this type of material, surprisingly. Which seems weird to me. Yeah, given the other roles he's taken, that's kind of odd. So I'm wondering almost if him turning down a porn-based movie in 97 that was then quite successful is what led him to take the role two years later in 8mm as a porn store clerk. 
in a movie about porn. Ooh, I mean, I don't know. Yakin Phoenix, weird guy. And then, of course, yeah, we bring Marky Mark into this. He is a dishwasher in the back. He's got a really strong work ethic for a 17-year-old. <laughs> he is offered to come back and join the table with Burt Reynolds, his Jack Horner character. He's like, yeah, I, I make porn. I make really good porn. Mm-hmm. And Marky Mark's like, yeah, man, I've heard of you. Yeah. And he's like, well, now you know I'm not full of shit, so why don't you get that beautiful dick of yours and come sit next to me? And Marky's like, I would, but I have to wash these dishes. Yeah. I can't betray Maurice. Maurice is, he's awesome. You don't, you don't go against him. So the plans to get him on film are temporarily thwarted. Oh, uh, like, oh, darn your work ethic, kid. I don't know. If anything, I think this endeared uh, him to Jack Corner even more because he's like, okay. It's like if you're getting a new job and they say, okay, when can you start? You're like, well, I have to give two weeks notice on my other job. They're like, okay, good to know you are not the kind of person who just dumps a job really fast. We like yeah, that. No. It, it was intriguing to Jack Horner. But then we're going to get a series of further up character establishing snippets that are all really great and successful at setting up who these people are on a combined trope level in a certain way <laughs> with their own little personality quirks. So we're going to get William H. Macy's character, who is the director of photography on the porn films that they shoot within this world. Mm-hmm. He's going to come home. He's going to open the door. He's going to drop his keys. And immediately you're like, this poor bastard just can't uh. do anything right because he just kind of looks at his keys, picks them up, turns off the TV... And then we hear squeaking in the background that's sort of building. And in he goes to the bedroom to check, and his wife is just casually banging some dude and tells him to get out because he's ruining the vibes. God damn it, man. Why, every time, every time, you ruin a good time for me. God damn She's it like, all. go sleep on the couch, man. He's like, but that's my wife. She's like, no, go sleep on the couch. <laughs> so he does. So we're, we're learning that they might have an interesting dynamic. It doesn't seem like he's particularly getting off on the cuckold, so that doesn't seem like a sex thing they do. When someone, se- like, insultingly calls someone a cuckold, this is what they're picturing, as opposed to the actual cuckoldry thing where, you know, he would be really into this happening. Yeah, like, he doesn't go to the couch and masturbate. He just sort of goes to the couch and is sad about it. So this also doesn't seem like a completely consensual, like, polyamorous situation either. No, no, not at all. It's kind of a curious thing that's happening here, I guess. But yeah, it sets him up as this sort of sad dude. We've got Julianne Moore's character, Amber Waves, and she is going to do a line of coke and then sit on the corner of her bed and call her ex-husband begging to speak to her child, which he doesn't seem to want to let her do. We are going to get Buck Swope, and he's gonna, we're gonna get his introduction by just a shot of his employee of the month plaque, <laughs> where he's wearing like a cowboy hat yep. and the pearl snap button up, looking really excited Buck's and happy. really into that cowboy look, and I personally love his intro scene because fun fact about about ben uh i used to work in a tv store you did used to work in a tv store yeah. which we'll never let him forget yeah. every time we have problems with electronics we're like yo benji you used to work in a tv okay, store yeah. so come fucking do this for me so yeah backstory about us apparently what well not apparently one time we were all hanging with friends there was a problem with the tv and i i guess 
perhaps somewhat magnanimously, just said, oh, I'll take care of it. I used to work at a TV store. And, and everyone in the room's like, oh, look at this guy. Used to work at a TV store. Well, God forbid we touch the thing. You go ahead. Oh, I think it was like, it was delivered in this tone that was like the most like ridiculous, absurd, humble brag. <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, I used to work in a TV store and we're like, oh, well, did you? <laughs> what a claim to fame, Benji. What Jesus, man. Stop it. Our pants can only come off so quickly, dude. God damn. So yeah, you and your TV working skills. So what did you, what was your takeaway from this scene uh, from your days at a TV store? I absolutely love just how much bullshit he is like. Like throwing out at this guy he's talking about like oh yeah this will uh well, they'll get up a few extra quads uh there and there's like a <laughs> there's a deleted scene where he's talking about quads too and unless i miss something quads are not a thing you know no. wattage is a thing decibels ohms impedance that's a thing quads i've never heard of so i'm pretty sure he's just making up some shit and he completely blows the sale by playing country music on them so like so that he can hear the bass yeah, okay, dude, there's... Yeah, he's like, listen to that thing kick, and we're like, oh, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> like, you have so many options for mu music from the 70s that could give you good bass, and you chose country music. Ah, oh, poor guy. And it's like old-timey country music, yeah. too. It's sort of just the this Western score type of music. He's also drinking coffee out of a coffee <laughs> mug the whole time that he keeps putting on top of this beautiful receiver and it's like don't don't stain the wood Stop man it. like yeah every get your coffee mug off everything's of covered in wood don't stain it the entire time i was just super distracted during the scene every time with him just like continuously putting his coffee mug down on this thing oh, i'm like i'm waiting God. for it to spill because here's here's my ridiculous pretentious humble brag moment oh boy <laughs> the, the one <laughs> I, I own a collection of vintage 70s receivers. <laughs> like, I really, really love receiver technology from the 1970s. I've got a Marantz, I've got a Kenwood, I've got a Sensui. I actually like my Rotel the best, but I, I use them too. They're all hooked up to sound systems and stuff. So I, I love the aesthetic of love them. I love the tone and uh, sound quality of them. So yeah, I get really excited by this scene and Don Cheadle's character. Oh. Just throwing out all this yeah bullshit terminology to try to rope people in. Because I was like, yeah, I'd buy that machine from you, Don Cheadle. <laughs> so then we also get Marky Marks set up. Eddie, what's his last name initially? Eddie Adams. The most yes. bland name you could possibly have. Eddie Adams. Eddie Adams. So Eddie Adams is going to be in his room at his parents' house because he still lives at home because he's only 17. And his room is just collaged in posters that are very 17-year-old yeah. boy stuff. We're going to have, like, every Al Pacino movie poster known to mankind. Every Bruce Lee poster that you could have had from back in the day. And that one Farrah Fawcett poster that I think, as my mother told me, everyone in the 70s had that Farrah Fawcett poster. <laughs> A lot of muscle car kind of posters. Yeah. And he is just going to be in his underwear typical marky mark fashion just in his briefs <laughs> doing karate in front of his mirror karate. i feel like he's the type of guy that would always just pronounce it karate he has a very he clearly has a very peripheral outside knowledge of karate he has seen bruce lee films and probably thinks that bruce lee is doing karate even though bruce lee did a whole other thing jeet kundo but that's neither here nor there yeah i'm not really sure that 
Eddie Adams here is fully pulling off any moves from anything. Not as <laughs> he is kind of kicking. I mean, really, if you watch Dolomite, I think Dolomite can do martial arts better than Eddie can here. But he seems to make himself think that this makes him look super hot, super foxy like, yeah. in his mirror. He's getting off to himself. And we also get like the first teasing shot of the bulge in his pants like when we cut mm. to his room we're gonna get like the camera dwelling on his still jeaned yeah it, this helps a lot because i remember whenever i watched this film i would think to myself okay how does jack corner know that eddie has a big dick and then you see how he fits into those jeans You're like oh okay yeah that is not subtle okay yeah it's not subtle at all also Eddie does mention at first when Jack Horner shows up in the back room, he just assumes that he's there to pay him to either jerk off or just to see his dick. Because he's like, it's 10 if you want to watch me jerk off, but it's 5 if you just want to see it. And Jack Horner looks surprised for a second, pleasantly so, and is like, men pay you just to look at your dick? And he's like, well, yeah. (laughs) He's like, well, that must be something special. And, uh, but... I, I did a little inflation calculator work on this, and ten bucks in nineteen seventy-seven would be like about forty dollars today. All right, yeah, that's, so, a, like, that's a nice sum of change just to like flash someone. Yeah, if you're sure. you're a seventeen-year-old and someone's paying you to to jack off, and you're getting forty bucks out of it, yeah, pretty good deal, gotta say. Basically, anytime you hear a dollar amount in this film, multiply by four, and you have like today's equivalent. It's a good to know from yeah here on out. Mm-hmm. On the stats front as well, so penis statistics, of course, Please. the average penis size for most males lies somewhere between five and six inches. It is apparently only in the 0.2% range if you have a 10-inch dick or bigger. Really? I don't mm-hmm. know. I've seen a lot of porn that begs to differ with that. Well, apparently that is the... Point two percent. That in yes. any uh, I've noticed, uh, we the literature that we have shared is, is gay erotica, and I, what we've noticed there is that in gay erotica, I don't think there is a single penis that exists that is shorter than eight inches long. Oh my god, so true. Yeah, and they always call them the most bizarre things. So when we say gay erotica, we're talking about some. Paperback novels that were published in the 1970s through the early 1990s. There is a used bookstore in Dayton, Ohio, randomly, where one of our dear people resides. And so whenever one of us goes to visit, we pick up a little porn for the other. And now I have like a little collection of all the ones you've brought me. And they are hilarious. The euphemisms that the 1970s paperback erotic novels used for stuff is some of the least sexy language I have ever seen written on paper. It's spectacular. But yeah, there are a lot of big dicks um, in the the literary imagination, Mm -hmm. I guess. Real life stats, not nearly as fun. But you know what? That's real life for you. So go figure. But yeah, I think most cocks in porn tend to be in like the seven to like nine and a half inch range. I would say that like over 10 is a little bit more unusual. And this is, I think, in... These might be U.S. statistics, because I think that there are different stats in different sort of regions. I 
think once again the Scandinavians come in with some of the higher stats there. I oh, think yeah. dicks run a little bit bigger in like Denmark, but definitely. I mean that that just throws the curve completely off if you include those stats. So you can't <laughs> yeah. do that. So excluding the Danes, no. um, but <laughs> Not yeah, they're Dane dicked, but yeah. This guy, however, seems to be even bigger he's, than 10. He's on the, you know, I did, I was thinking, this is our 13th episode. 13 is a number that figures into this. That's hilarious. Yeah, so he has a 13-inch cock, allegedly. Allegedly. Which is very substantial. I, I've known two dudes in my life that are known for having like these really gigantic appendages one of them was a friend of mine in college and this poor guy like we would go to parties and he was kind of a legend to the point where like when people got like a little tipsy or something they would start chanting for him to like take down his pants so like i saw this poor dude's junk so many times in public places because he's just like fine <laughs> and he just like kind of whip it out and then, of course, our, our other friend who, who lives in L.A., whose who's dick is legendary, who I feel also kind of is like the, the Dirk Diggler, <laughs> as it were. But, yeah, there's something, there's a fascination yeah. with people and that people have for other people with really big dicks. Both of these guys, like, people harass them constantly to see their junk, so. And it never really seems like it has a good end game for them because I have heard similar stories from people and they're like, yeah, they just want to see it and then that's it. Like, well, I can, we get to do something now, right? Like, fuck no, I'm not going to do anything with that dick. Yeah, no, both of these friends of mine actually have expressed kind of a, like, it takes a very specific person to actually want to interact with what I got going on. <laughs> it's not the easiest thing ever to, like, find other people that are yeah. like, yeah, that looks I fun. I think that is, so. that's the reality of actually having the ultimate male fantasy, like, huge dick, whereas this this movie kind of posits the exact opposite. Everyone wants to fuck Dirk, or everyone wants to fuck Eddie. Uh, we have a scene where he is, like, I don't know. Hey, he's just had sex with his girl with a some woman that is kind of his girlfriend, and she says like, "Your cock is so beautiful. You know how good you are whenever you're fucking me." Also, fun fact that Dr. Michelle Vaughn, PhD, pointed out to me is that that woman who plays his girlfriend is from the L Word. Yeah, Tina from the L Word. I noticed that this time. I was like, "Is that Tina?" <laughs> She's also an Angel, randomly oh, well. for some of the worst seasons of Angel. But. Oh. She looks very different as a brunette. It's crazy. It took me a second. Oh, she's normal blonde. Okay, yeah. Anyway, yeah, usually a blonde actress. Anyway, moving on. We get a scene of Roller Girl at school where she just says fuck it to her schoolwork. Oh, yeah, that's the final establishing character. Oh, yeah. Thing is. There's like a little bit there with the, some schoolmate of hers like turns around at her and starts making a blowjob sign. And like, a, you know, the tongue like against the, the cheek of the mouth, whatever that, you know, and the motion. And I always thought, oh, he's like, he's saying like, yeah, you do that. But then watching it this time, I realized, oh, no, he's saying, yeah, I really like doing that, too. We are, we're, I relate to you. <laughs> we got this in common. Yeah, you know, we both do this. Yeah, it's great. You know, what, what an affirming scene. Yeah, no, unfortunately, he does seem to be like harassing her oh, no, in absolutely. some capacity. But we also establish very quickly like, oh, this woman is in high school. So uh... that <laughs> becomes very interesting and shocking for a second. But she, yeah, skates out of her test. So we also establish that like she never takes her skates off, even when she's in high school mm -hmm. for the day. 
that seems like that would be a challenging hindrance on your life if mm. you were always in roller skates. Yeah. Then we have a few. There's a deleted scene thing where that shows her like taking off her shorts uh, and like how she maneuvers them around the skates and all that. But that just it does seem like that would be a problem at some point. Well, it's just also like going up the stairs yeah. in roller skates in her high school or <laughs> later she's going to like kick someone while wearing roller skates. And that's an athletic feat within itself. So anyway, but she she's roller girl. She wears her roller skates and she will be back at the Boogie Nights Club mm-hmm. and Jack Horner will whisper something in her ear and she nods and she skates on back to where Mark Wahlberg is washing dishes and she just drops down to start giving him some head. Gives him that freezer blowy. Although, and it's really, really great. The way that this scene is lit mm. is beautiful. Yeah. So she's going to skate in and the hallway is going to be lit. The scene where he is within this kind of closet or something is very dark. And so we get this really soft backlighting that falls onto Heather Graham's face. Mm-hmm. And it golden and it's gorgeous and her little wide eyes as she unzips Eddie Adams pants and then like the surprise like, on her face. Give it to the old college try. Here we go. <gasps> Once again, it's the Hugh Jackman thing. Yeah. It's the surprise on their faces. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, a surprise on her face. They just know and the earth is it's dead and dull. But if you could fool them just for a moment. With a huge dick. And then we're going to get this really great sound effect. So the sound mixing in this one is also just really great. Mm. Sound is really great in Boogie Nights in general. But we're just going to get this really deep gulp of air. Yeah. <laughs> like, so she takes like, a really deep oh breath boy, here we go. <laughs> as she goes down and cuts out of the frame. Which I don't really... Would you need to take a deeper breath because the dick is bigger? I don't really get the functionality there. Apparently, I don't know, this might be like some sort of like 1972 deep throat reference. <laughs> she's about to go down and she's going to she's going to go deep and she needs a, a bigger breath. But yeah, like in a way, once your airway is blocked, your airway is blocked, yeah. right? It doesn't really matter how big that is. But then we're going to get Burt Reynolds and co pulling up to meet Eddie at the end of his work shift <laughs> In this gorgeous turquoise paint job of a car. (laughs) I think it was a 1977 Cadillac Seville, as far as I could tell. But Mm -hmm. it's turquoise, and it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. And, yeah, they're going to kind of say, hey, honey, why don't you come with us? We were impressed by your performance standing there getting some head. (laughs) Good job with that. Yeah. But they go to, to a Jack's house. We haven't talked about Jack's house yet and the look of this place. Oh, Jack's house. At the risk of this becoming a four-hour podcast, tell me a little bit about the look of this place. Uh, Jack's house seems to be a ranch-style house straight out of a refurbished 1970s kind of aesthetic. So we have a little bit of a mix of some of the stuff that started to become popular in the 50s and 60s, but looks like it was then redone in the 70s to add some bigger glass panels out towards the back, towards the pool. We're just going to get a lot of beautiful woods, mixtures of wood in there on the beam support. 
This is a 1970s house. It's got some shag carpets. Apparently, production-wise, they looked a really long time for this house. <laughs> they I could see that. They scouted a lot of locations, and this is the one they sort of ended up with. The wallpaper is perfect. The, yeah, everything about this design is just gorgeous, and it also has a very open floor plan yeah. being this ranch-style property, and so we get a lot of tracking shots that are going to interweave and really show us the space. Mm-hmm. Yes. And this is where, you know, Jack has explained, you know, he had coffee with Eddie and explained to him, like, look, man, it's hard making these pornos, but I want to make one that's just amazing and makes, I want to make some art. All right. I want to make something you got to, you jerk off and you just got to sit in it because the movie's so captivating that you have to just sit there in your juices and wait until the story ends. Yeah, Burt Reynolds, mm-hmm. he has a dream. He has a he dream. he delivers his I have a dream speech. Yes. And it includes the line, when they spurt out that joy juice, they just need to sit in it because they need to know how the story ends. It's like, when they spurt out that joy juice, huh? Yeah. Mm. Sexy. So he just wants them to sit there in their fluids, in their juices, captivated by the story of the porn. But he needs to audition Eddie first. This is like the true casting couch moment. And so he calls Roller Girl back over and he's like, I want you to go sit over there with Eddie. And then she just perks up and goes, are we going to fuck? And he's like, oh, yeah. She's like, great. And oh, one moment. She goes and she puts on some music. So she is like down for this ride. Heather Graham is delightful in this. She's like, we going to fuck? Cool. Let's do it. But then she also exhibits some great little kind of bossy agency where she's on top and she's like, don't don't fucking come at me. Right. And uh, he's like, OK. And then he's like, do you want to take your skates off? She's like, my skates don't come off. <laughs> I never take my skates off. And he's like, all right. Yeah, whatever you said. And Jack just very casually is like, just aim at her tits, Eddie. Yeah, and then he's going to smoke a cigarette just while he does this. He's going to inhale some smoke, and he's going to blow out some like, smoke rings just the, in the most casual fashion. The master watching, just to make sure everything is good. And, yeah, I assume Eddie passes the audition. He goes back home late at night while his, where his mother is waiting for him, and his mother is hates him, really. Uh, one thing I'll give Paul Thomas Anderson credit for is like he will admit when he feels he's made a mistake. Because in his commentary, he's like, I really do wish I had explained more of why this mother is crazy. Because we know she's crazy from the movie, but we just don't really understand why. And yeah, there is no explanation for it. So I wish I'd expand on that. So Yeah, this bitch is intense. Yes. Like, she is sitting in the dark on an armchair in the living room just... when her son gets home. Like some sort of 1940s mafia member <laughs> just waiting to take out a hit. And... He's going to come in and she's just going to start screaming out of him. Like, where were you until these late hours of the night? First of all, he works at a nightclub. So I have to imagine getting home late is kind of a thing for him. But then she's like, were you out fucking that whore, Cheryl Lynn? And you're like, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Like, that seems unnecessary. This girl seemed perfectly lovely. His girlfriend from before, Tina from the L Word. There is some fantastic stuff happening in this scene. Mark Wahlberg is really great in this, I think. Like, he has this... He's breaking a little bit because he can't take much more of this from his mother. And it is a dramatic scene, but there are moments that, that kind of make me laugh because she's like, you're good for nothing. You're not going to do anything. Um, yes, I will. And he starts to run off to his room and she gets up. She's like, what are you going to do? Huh? What are you going to do? And the bit that always makes me laugh is she says, I don't know, but I'm going to do something. Yeah. Where he's like, please don't be mean to me. <laughs> oh my God. Sweet honey child. There's a moment that just always 
tugs at my, at my heartstrings because we have one shot of the father who's just sitting alone in the bedroom and he's crying, but he's not doing anything. And like, mm-hmm. I think like that, that that just gives you a glimpse into something very, very hard on this family. Uh, but we don't really get into it too much because we got to keep this thing moving. Yeah, we're never going to see these people again. It's fine. No. But yeah, then he is going to go and run into Jack Horner, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Burt Reynolds. And get invited into this party that is going on at the moment. And we get the pool party. <laughs> we also get the introduction of John C. Riley's character. We met briefly at the first scene, but this is like where we really get into his character that is just so, he's so funny. Like, Reed, meet Eddie, the kid, new kid off the street. Oh, so you live in the street, huh? What? No, I don't live in the street. Oh, that's weird. I thought Jack said you were lived in the street. Hmm. So you work out? <laughs> yeah. How much you squat? Like two, two fifty. <laughs> oh, oh, really? Yeah. They, How about you? Three fifty. It's no big deal. Like everything is gonna just be this one-up competition with Mark Wahlberg's character, and it's great. And then he'll also say things like, "Ever see the movie Star Wars?" <laughs> yeah, like four times. People tell me I look like Han Solo. Huh. So John C. Riley's character thinks uh, very highly of himself, and it's kind of great. Yeah, he's like, oh, you ever work out at this other place? Uh, no, no, you don't, because I would have seen you there. I'm there. I would have seen you there. I'm there every day. Yeah, you are, John C. Riley. So this pool party, oh. this pool party is going to be one of the scenes that we probably dwell the most on, other than the the drug deal scene. Yeah. But... God. Uh, there is so there's just so much going on in this thing. We we made so many. We get like more information about like Buck is obsessed with dressing like a cowboy. Becky is telling him like, "Do not dress like a fucking cowboy, you idiot." We get a bit of Maurice uh, talking to Amber's like, "Look, I wanna I wanna be in one of the films so I can send it back to my brothers in Puerto Rico and like say, look at me, look at how awesome I am." And which always confused me. I'm like, dude, you're doing really well. You own a nightclub. You're you're on top of it. You're good, but apparently it's not a mark of success. You're not anybody in America unless you're in a porno. Yeah, that's that's the mark of... 1977, baby. <laughs> so Julian Moore is going to see Marky Mark at this party, and she's just going to give him these oh. really prolonged, like, fuck me eyes. Good God. <laughs> William H. Macy's wife is, like, banging a bunch of dudes on the driveway. It's, it's so weird to be like, yeah, there's a crowd watching this, and it's... I mean, okay, yeah, the idea that there's two people fucking in the driveway, that is scandalous, but it's just, like, vanilla missionary style that they're watching. Like, yeah, look at that guy's back and ass and her arms and legs. Whoa, boy, yeah. Yeah, it is not the most demonstrative or interesting or engaging sex ever. <laughs> they're just fucking on the driveway. This, um, His wife is played by Nina Hartley, who, in her own right, is a well-established pornographic actress back in the day. There are a few legit porn stars who do make cameos in this movie in, in fun ways. I really like that. There's a great scene between William H. Macy and uh, Ricky Jay, who's a cinematographer in the film, and they're just trying to talk about the movie. And my favorite line is William H. Macy gets flustered, or Little Bill, his his character's name, he gets flustered. He's like, I can't concentrate on, on the goddamn lighting for the film right now. My wife has an ass in her cock, okay? I'm distracted. What's extra great is they are talking about his director of photography duties, or his DP duties, uh, so I like my notes to say, <laughs> DP talk on the driveway. Oh, uh, <laughs> nice. We're, uh, we're discussing some DP. And... 
then we also get the arrival of the colonel who's going to show up with this anorexic, emaciated porn star. Oh, the women the colonel has in this movie. Good God. Even Who yeah. is addicted to some cocaine use. So she, uh, she goes immediately to search out for some coke. Yeah. And later they are going to find her in the bedroom with this one other like precious dumb porn star who's like cradling her body and she's just got blood all over her nose she's passed out i think there's something wrong with her just crying (laughs) yeah well i love that she shows up and asks jack straight up like will there be any cocaine at this party oh i'm I'm sure we can find some he she goes to the pool and this guy this porn star has a mirror that has like Scarface levels amount of cocaine on it. There is a fucking mountain of coke on this thing. It's insane. Yeah, 1977, man, <laughs> out in L.A. Like, like, coke sh- didn't just appear in the 80s. It didn't just apparate. Oh, no. Like, it, was it, was, it was always there, waiting in the valley. <laughs> Except for this is not some good shit, because Apparently yeah, not. then they're going to go looking for her in a bit. She's passed out, mm-hmm. blood dripping down her face as this poor dumb dude yeah. is just cradling her body in his arms. The colonel walks in with this guy, and they're just like, oh, fuck another one, okay. Yeah, what fucking shit is this? I, I love that she's like, she starts convulsing, he freaks out, and the colonel says, oh, man, in the midst of all this fucking conversation, what are we even doing? Let's get her the fuck out of here. Uh, this kid is going to go, I think she did too much coke. And the colonel's like, Oh, you think so, Doctor? <laughs> like, this is the second chick to OD on me in two days, man! Like, Well, maybe this means you uh, should think about getting some new shit. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. They, they uh, take the body out, and this is where we get our introduction to, I think, my personal best performance in this movie, Philip Seymour Hoffman playing Scotty. Yes! God damn, oh he God. is so good in this movie. There is not a single gesture or twitch of the face that Philip Seymour Hoffman does here that is just not amazing. Rest in peace, Philip Seymour Hoffman. We miss you. So his introduction is going to be through his literal tunnel vision yeah. onto Dirk. So like the camera <laughs> is going to tunnel vision. Focuses in, comes in, is like, oh, hi, uh, you, you work, uh, you're going to be working on the movies? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I work on the movies sometimes too, you know, it's, you know, whatever. It's cool. Oh my God, he's so great. Uh, oh. Dirk has to go over, see the colonel. We have two great things here where Jack explains the colonel puts up the money for the pictures. It's kind of an important part of the process. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Carl says, maybe think about your name, change that a bit. Now, Jack tells me you have a very big cock. Uh, well, yeah, I, I guess it's pretty big, yeah. May I see it? You, you want to see it? Yes, please. And we just stay on the colonel's face. The movie is very careful about how it shows things. Stay on the colonel's face, and his... It's not that his eyes, like, widen. His, like, his entire forehead and scalp seem to jerk back in shock at what he's seen. And just, like, he looks back up with a big smile face, like, Thank you very much, Eddie. And he walks away, and the colonel, like, is just frozen, vapor-locked from the sheer shock of the cock that he has seen. It's the look on their faces. <laughs> <laughs> so, then we're going to get this, like, first porn shoot. Oh, God, so many things about this I love. freshly named Dirk Diggler is going to shoot. This is his premiere. Yes. This is like the one time his look is just horrible. Like, good God. Like, Mark Wahlberg, he has, like, I think it's a wig. And on the wig, they have put so much fucking grease in his hair. It looks like he, like, has petrified wood on his head. The way that, like, it's parted in the middle and Mm -hmm. pushed back. It's just 
Oh, so bad. Time period appropriate, though. Yeah, they're talking like, uh, how's the light looking? Well, we got some shadows. There's shadows in real life, baby. It's cool. Yeah, this is going to be great because Scotty's going to come get him. And he's going to be just chewing on the pen that oh. is protruding from his clipboard yeah. while he tells him how great he looks. He is. He's got a fixation that involves the oral. <laughs> you look, you look really good. Nom, nom, chewing my pen. Yeah. And then we're going to get this really sweet pre-sex exchange because Dirk Diggler is set to do his first scene with Amber Waves, mm -hmm. Julian Moore's character. And it's really sweet because... He's very nervous. Yeah. He wants to make sure it looks good. He wants to make sure that she's having a good time. And so he's asking a lot of questions. And it's really sort of lovely, this setup, that these people care about each other. There's a beautifully touchy moment where, yeah, Julianne Moore, like, she just reaches up, touches the side of his face, like, hey, hey, it's okay. We're, we're going we're gonna to do great here. Okay. Yeah, thanks. We have a very character-telling moment where Jack is saying, like, I'll say, uh, action, Eddie, uh, that's you, and you come in, and we go. Uh, okay, uh, uh, Mr. Horner, yeah? Could, could you could you just only call me Dirk Diggler from now on? Of course. Of course. We'll do that. And I thought to myself... I'm sorry, my bad. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> ah, yes, this is a director written by a director who understands actors and what they need. <laughs> yeah, so... He is going to do his little scene, and we get two really great things happening with this establishing Golden Age sex shoot. One on a just filmic level, we get to see the film process. Mm -hmm. So we're going to cut into the vision of the camera in a couple of different ways. We sort of see the different aspect ratio changing. We see the different film grain and the quality changing, mm -hmm. how the lights and the tonal temperatures are looking on the film reel that they're getting. Yeah. We also get the interior shot of the camera sort of mirror lens and, it's, and everything's yeah, it's, upside it's down. It's brilliant because the image through the lens is both upside down and reversed, which if you were to look through a camera lens in real life, that is what you would see. You wouldn't see like the exact thing. You would see like that flipped image, which is only corrected in the post process. Yeah, so we kind of get this moment here where we actually get to see the technical components of film and like, just really this love letter to the fact that this is 35 millimeter porn stock. I think this is 16 millimeter, but all the same, whatever. Fair enough. Yeah. Still, it is film, and film, film will run out. Yes, the film will run out. They have to change over, switch over the reel. And so we get a little bit of the kind of paratextual stuff of they have to break right in between. And in the commentary, Anderson talked about watching a lot of the outtake blooper reels from this time period oh, that he could find God, and yeah. that it would be like this right you would have to pause to switch over the reels that there would be people that like fart or sneeze and you have to like kind of stop and change and like refilm or you know like cut that part out and that there seemed to be this great camaraderie and a lot of them on set where people would kind of like rush it and like help somebody blow their nose or whatever mm -hmm. and then kind of step back and get out and that he wanted to capture a little bit of that, like, realness of what's mm. happening here. This interesting yeah. thing that they're trying to simulate a sexual experience while also technically having a sexual experience, but a very different one from what's yeah. formalized on the screen. And, and Burr Reynolds is just so great in here because he's, like, watching the scene so intently. And they say, like, oh, we got to change magazines. And he's just like, do it quickly. 
make it yeah, happen. Yeah, because they have some chemistry, yeah. right? They're, they're getting some He's chemistry like, going. He's like, this is some fun. We got some gold here, man. We got to make this happen. And they get ready. And a, a gag I did not at all understand when I was younger, but having worked in like film now, that made me laugh so hard was when they were getting ready to go again. He's like, they said, uh, okay, okay, we're ready to slate. And Jack says, quiet sticks. And that made me laugh so much because what quiet sticks means is that when you have the clapper that like, so like scene one and act two, like, you know, take three, whatever. And then you, you know, link, you know, and it claps to sync up your audio and video. Uh, if you have a scene where actors are very much in the moment and very much concentrating, you don't want to break their concentration. So in that moment, you would say either soft sticks or quiet sticks. So what this is telling us is that to Jack, these people are so in the moment, we can't do anything to fuck with their concentration. Yeah, no, they're, everybody on the set right now is taking stuff super seriously. And... Dirk Diggler is going to continue to ask more, like, does it does it feel good, this, right? Does it look sexy? Look and so sexy. it's cute because he wants to deliver yeah. on this product. We also have a lot of really great aesthetics going on in the scene with the makeup choices and the casting choices because Julian Moore is going to come off as a very time period appropriate for the 70s or golden age porn aesthetic with her body. She has a very natural body. She doesn't have breast implants. Her makeup is very minimal she takes down her hair naturally herself and so these do look like two very real people (laughs) that are banging it out on her desk we're also gonna get just a lot of sweat and glowy dewy type of makeup they put a lot of glitter on her and a lot of glycerin (laughs) on him so that everything just sort of glows in that 1970s lighting way and then the acting Oh, the acting. This is so great to me because both Julianne Moore and Mark Wahlberg are amazing here because Mark, he has to act nervous. Like, that's what's going on with with Eddie slash Dirk in this scene. Whereas Amber, she isn't nervous, but she's also not a good actor. Paul Thomas Anderson will gush about this in the commentary so much where he explains, like, you don't know how good an actor is until they can act badly. And Julianne Moore is doing that so well in this with this dialogue and like her motions. And she talks about in the commentary how she's like, yeah, like when you're a young actor, you're so self-conscious of of like where your hands are. So I decide like, okay, I can never relax my hands. My hands just always have to be grabbing something or like put together in, in some sort of prayer mode or whatever. And it like it works so well to make it look stilted and awkward as acting like this would really come off. And also just the tone in which the lines are delivered. So I absolutely love when actors act poorly on purpose for different reasons yes. in movies. So I get really excited by this entire scene here. And yeah, just the inflection or lack of inflection where it's like, I need to check something. This is a giant cock. <laughs> Whoa. Well, well <laughs> and it's, it's so great. There you go. So and great. they get into it. And I love that, like, the second that Dirk assumingly has his dick out, that's where everyone just their eyes very subtly begin to bug out. They're like leaning over, looking like, whoa, whoa, what the hell is going on over there? My God. Yeah, the camera dude like pops out from behind the eyepiece for a second and then just kind of slowly goes back in. And Philip Seymour Hoffman's reaction. He is oh. shaking from the glory of this dick. 
just like oh, hub, hub. yeah he's hyperventilating oh, a little bit but he's also trying to hold up the boom mic so he's just like it's shaking oh my god it's so good i want scotty to just like get dick down really really hard for his sake like poor dude oh man if only rest in peace philip rest in peace then we cut to the upswing montage oh here we go so, a good portion of what comes next just comes in rapid fire, although they are going to use a really cool 1970s split screen mm-hmm. technique, which was common in some film directors, mostly TV in the 1970s, yeah. used this a lot. Brian De Palma was really well known for it, too. Yes, it's the De Palma split screen, mm-hmm. more or less. And I, I miss it, really. It's a cool montage technique. They are all taking this continuously very seriously that they're going to film Spanish pantalones and <laughs> he's going to be like, Jack, do you want me to do this in a Spanish accent for the authenticity? <laughs> Jack Horner is going to be visiting his editor to make sure like, how does it look? Right. And he's like, Oh no, let's remove, you know, this one piece from the film so that we can really, you know, like punch up the title or whatever. They, they are detailing what's going to happen here. They have porn awards. Yes, the porn award, the the second annual adults uh, film awards, which I got curious. Like, okay, were there such things as adult film awards? Obviously, there are today. Uh, the AVN awards have been a thing for I think nearly thirty six, thirty seven years. AVN started in nineteen eighty four, as, as did um, XRCO, the X rated critics organization, also started in nineteen eighty four. Did you find an organization that gave out awards prior to eighty four? Yes, it was the Adult Film Association of America, and they start their first uh, awards ceremony was 1977. Oh, okay. And believe it or not, John Holmes was present there, and I believe, let me see if I can find the exact quote. Yes, uh, it's, uh, John Holmes, he told the crowd the first year's awards, in the not too far distant future, we will proudly say that we were pioneers. Excellent. So yeah, they're they were drawing on some real things here because Dirk is getting all of the awards: best newcomer, best dick, best actor, and his speech is something like, you know what, guys, I'm gonna we're gonna make these be- these films even better, and I'm gonna continue rocking and rolling. Okay, if you're gonna rock and roll with me, all right. Everyone's like, yeah, yeah, great, and the the rise continues from there. Like it just gets better and better. Which allows him to buy a lot of stuff he, so that we get the look at my shit scene. Yeah. Where... <laughs> Might as well be that. Yeah, He buys all the Italian shoes. There was one moment where I just thought to myself, why can Scotty not find clothes that fit him? Because... Yeah, surely those pants just needed, he just needed to go up a size. Yeah, poor little dude. The whole time, like, I swear to God, in like Philip Seymour Hoffman's first scene, he has male camel toe happening. His shorts are so tight on him. Like, Scotty, just... Just go up well, a size, man. I think this is like man. his style, right? Like he's always wearing those belly shirts. Like oh. he, he always has a little belly sticking out because yeah, but he looks he like, looks upset. Like in that scene where they're buying clothes and he has the same shirt on and whatever same style, whatever that Dirk and Reed have. He looks like upset at himself and like dejected about his body. And I thought, okay, sh- Scotty, you don't have to buy the same size as them. You can buy something that just fits you, and that's okay. But that's that's not Scotty's character. And let's- there are some types of higher designers that only go up to certain sizes, so it might just be that the, the be. types of things that they are shopping for mm-hmm. do not come in higher things. I like kind of think of Mean Girls almost, <laughs> where they're out shopping for dresses in Mean Girls, and Regina has put on some weight since, so she's like, 
do you have anything in a size six or something? And the saleswoman looks at her with disdain. And she's like, no, we only go up to size four. Try Sears. Right? Oh. <laughs> like, oh, shit. So that might be like just this uh, custom Italian designer yeah. thing. But his sad pants face is so endearing oh. when his pants like, don't fit. And he just oh. kind of sighs and frowns. Oh, Philip Seymour happened. But, you know, and Dirk, he's buying all this stuff and he doesn't know what the hell he's even buying like he, he'll like rattle off some like oh yeah they're you, these are great shoes they, they are like a special italian leather uh they have to import and the shirt is like made by this other uh i think italian or you know french designer or whatever like he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about but it doesn't matter he is on top of the world he's like uh <laughs> he's dancing at the nightclub and one thing i loved about this that uh when we're when they there's a whole there's a coordinated disco dance number at one point here, yeah, which seems odd. And then I remember when I was younger, I was watching Saturday Night Fever on television with my mother. And it, there are all these scenes of like, you know, John Travolta dancing around and it's the same kind of like disco club floor with a light, with the different colored lights. And she's like, yeah, that's pretty much what it was. I'm like, what do you mean? She says, well, no one knew how to dance, but there will be one guy at the club who did know how to dance. And so when he began to dance, Everyone just did whatever he did. <laughs> there was no, like, you didn't know what the moves were. You're just doing what the guy who is dancing the hardest seems to be doing. And that's what yeah, this is. Improv like, line dancing. Yeah. Really. Everyone's dancing. I mean, it's obviously meant to be like a call. I think even Paul Thomas Anderson says this is a callback to, you know, musicals or Bugsby Berkeley, you know, style stuff. But it does, I think, work realistically because this is what went down at these clubs. It was just like, everyone do what that guy's doing. Another interesting thing is that in the commentary, Anderson will bring up Bugsby Berkeley a lot. Yeah, yeah. And so it's fun, once again, coming off of Showgirls. Hear they were super worried about becoming the next Showgirls, and yet both of them were drawing very heavily from Bugsby Berkeley aesthetics. So that's the good. Who, no, is, who is Bugsley, Bugsby Berkeley, uh, London, for those of us who did not know? So he's primarily a choreographer mm -hmm. from the Depression-era musicals yeah. that would create these really interesting geometric patterns on stage out of the positioning of bodies and whatnot. I think Showgirls pulls off a Bugsby Berkeley aesthetic in a lot more ways than Boogie Nights For did. Sure, like, yes. if Boogie Nights hadn't... or if. Anderson hadn't brought up Bugsby Berkeley in the commentary so often. I would not watch Bugs or I would not watch Boogie Nights and say, "Oh, they're doing Bugsby Berkeley." Right, yeah. right? This just seems like they're doing a disco club callback. I want to establish that because I feel like we mention Bugsby Berkeley a lot and we forget. Not everyone thinks about that all the time and looks up like ancient Broadway history, but there you go. Marky Mark has bought a new house. He's bought a new car. He's gotten all this new furniture. He's, he's just bought everything. He's bought a lot of stuff. He's furnished this house, and this house is going to have an interesting mixture of a lot of 70s furniture, a lot of 50s atomic accessories, and then his bedroom is going to start tinging a little bit heavier on the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Just fun fact there. I mean, this is very time period appropriately designed, yes. but... It's kind of fun where, like, his bedroom, like, his sex is already starting to hedge a little <laughs> bit more into the 1980s. I like to feel like that's mm. a deliberate sort of subtle choice. Now, we're going to cut to the New Year's party 
there's a banner up that says goodbye 70s hello 80s yeah all the good things have happened dirk has like won more awards and now we gotta get to we gotta now we gotta take a shift a very big tonal shift yeah, it's kind of a nice way of depicting it, too, with this kind of homemade banner. Mm-hmm. And Roller Girl's going to kind of take a picture with a Polaroid of this yeah. Goodbye 70s Hello 80s sign. And this is the first and only time that I can think of in a film where you see the onset turnover from the 1970s into the 1980s. And I don't want it to come. <laughs> Normally, we love getting into the 80s because all the amazing things are take place in the 80s. And the aesthetic of the 80s is fantastic. Outrun style stuff. All great. But here... I mean, there's a lot of horrible things that happened in the 80s. Yeah. But we're also kind of obsessed with, like, the bleak, nihilistic take on, like, the Reagan era. Oh, yeah. But... Usually it's done in like a fetishistic way mm-hmm. in 80s cinema. This is just going to be like all the worst things about the 1980s. Yeah, the movie is telling you here like you do not want this to happen. You do not want the 70s to end because it's bad news. And the worst news ever is that video is on the way. Yeah, video is not, not going to be great here. We have a character played by Philip Baker Hall. Uh, who is fantastic. He apparently is another investor that the colonel has brought in because the colonel also appears to know, like, this video thing is probably going to be, you know, a thing for us. We have to know about this. What's interesting to me about this guy's pitch for video is not about its, like, home usage, but just it's cheaper to film on this and the movie theaters are converting to video projectors. So this is still mm-hmm. positing a world in which the, the distribution of, por- of porn is theatrical. It's not home-based yet. Yeah, but he is also going to bring with him this rival horde yeah. of upcoming porn stars where he arrives with just a bunch of them in tow. They are all very forgettable. They're kind of still scraggly or whatever. They, yeah, they and look like they're kids who are tweaking like, this on the is streets. The next uprising stars, and it's a fun contrast to the fact when the colonel arrived at this 1970s pool party, he brought his one starlet with yeah. him. She was special. She was a diva. She was going to be showcased. And now we're already starting to get into the 1980s mindset of like we just scraped these guys together off the street, and we're going to present them in droves. Mm-hmm. And then. We are going to get the long tracking shot of Macy. Would you like to talk about the long tracking shot of Macy? Ah, uh, yes. So we're getting down to uh, New Year's. Two minutes to go. We like literally are told by Jack at the party after he has spoken with this other guy. Like, I, I got two. I got a few minutes left in this in the New Year's or in the seventies. Fuck you. I'm gonna spit with my friends. Gets up, says like, "Yep, two minutes to go." And now William H Macy is walking along. And from here until I say cut, it is all one continuous shot. He, like, bumps his head on the banner because he's just such a goofy guy. He's walking around like, has anyone seen my wife? Because presumably he wants to kiss his wife at midnight New Year's Eve. He walks around the house, opens the door, looks through the door. We don't see what's in the bedroom, but we can hear some squeaking. Having established this, we know what that is. He looks just, he's checked out he looks blank and begins to walk away walking to his car walking to his car unlocks the door gets in opens up the glove compartment of the door of the car and gets out a gun gets out locks the car door again leaves his drink and with the same calm manner he's had the entire time walks back into the house 
opens the door, and as they are counting, five, four, three, two, bang, 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 shoots both these people in the bed, his wife and another man. Well, he shoots three times, so I'm wondering if he had to double tap someone or if she was actually in there with two different people. On that, when he sh- when he you know pulls the trigger and shoots them, that's when it finally does cut to a, like a reaction of the crowd, just like what the hell? And he walks out almost in a zombie walk with the gun, uh, eyes glassy as can be, looks up at everyone, smiles, and shoots himself in the mouth. Cut to black. Title card: The '80s. Yeah, it's such a jarring cut. Like, gun to the mouth, just blood splattered on this white wall. 80s. <laughs> Appropriately, we start the 1980s with with horrible-looking uh, film of of Dirk and Reed, uh, where I, th- I feel like they were using, like, uh, in, when it came to film, you had uh, typically two different types of color film. You had film that was color-balanced for sunlight and then film that was color-balanced for tungsten light. Now, if you took, which was also known as, like, indoor light, so, like, if you were filming indoors and you just had the lights on your house... Uh, because the type of light you get from tungsten light is different than the like direct sunlight. But if you used indoor film outdoors, everything looks really blue. And that's what the shots are of of Dirk and Reed. They're just really blue and they look horrible. They just look ugly, pale, blue tinted. It's just bad. I feel like a lot of early 80s video did that. So Do you know, was it ever a problem in the early crossover from film to video that people just didn't quite know how to light it yet? Like, could be some sort of reference as well to the fact that people overused cool temperature lighting on early 1980s video? I I would say that, but the thing about video and the reason that it was adopted as quickly as it was was that lighting for it could be a lot easier in some ways because... The sensors that were like the CCD sensors inside the cameras could adjust their color temperature to match whatever the lighting was. Like, you know, nowadays, like most cameras will do it automatically. Back in the day, you would hold up a whiteboard in front of the camera so it took up all of the image and you hit white balance, the white balance button on the camera, and it would adjust its color temperature based on that so that the colors were correct. If you were just bad at your job, yeah, that, you know, you could get it wrong too. And that did sometimes happen. Uh, but also you could adjust how sensitive the camera was to light so you had more control over you know how bright the scene was going to be or how dark it was going to be uh, whereas with film film has only one color temperature it can work with only has one amount of like one sensitivity to light uh, films are often rated like at you know 100 asa 200 asa 400 asa like nowadays it's like referred to as iso which all digital cameras can you know, change as they want to. Obviously, you'll get different grainy effects depending on how make, how sensitive you make it. And that was the same with light, higher ASA rated films like 800 ASA. The image would look very grainy and all of that. So, yeah, you could fuck up doing video just as much as you could fuck up doing film. It just, the fuck up would be a different kind of fuck up, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And so they're not looking great either way here no. in the early 80s moments. He's also, he gets introduced, Marky Mark's character gets introduced by Amber Waves to cocaine at this New Year's party on the precipice of 1980. One of my questions was, we've seen Amber Waves have an 
addiction and problem with coke since we've known her. So it took her three years to introduce <laughs> her baby Dirk Diggler to coke use, but whatever. She does it in the 1980s. And he's going to get too coked out to fuck. Uh, yeah, which was uh, a very real thing that happened to John Holmes. Uh, the guy got into cocaine and he did so much coke, he could not get hard to save his life. Yeah, and so he's going to get into a fight with Jack Horner, get kicked out of the porn business for a little while, and instead turn to his backup dream as a recording artist. Oh. And they're going to, him and John C. Riley are going to go record a bunch of demo tapes Gary. that are going to be hilarious. You got the touch. Dun, dun. You got the power. And, I... and he thinks he's great. And it's, it is pretty great in its own way. Let me ask you something here in London. Do you think that Mark Wahlberg is good at singing bad or just a bad singer? I... I don't care either way as long as he continues to just sing like that. Fair enough. Whether he comes by it honest or whether it's a performance, I just hope that that's the only way I ever hear him sing. Uh, very true. Uh, Although, didn't the, the Funky Bunch did sonically perform stuff, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. I feel like if you listen to, uh, to Good Vibrations, he's, he, he's not really singing. That's true. They kind of, like, talk in a way that they pretend is rap or something. Well, I can't fully yeah, remember. Mark is, like, all the as Marky stuff. Mark, he's, like, rapping, rap talking. The, everyone else is singing. The Funky Bunch is singing. They're, like, getting some vocals going. But he's just more like, feel it, feel it. Come on, feel the vibration. Making sure you feel the vibration is my profession. Come on, come on, feel the vibration. But that's, like, what I'm doing now is about as much as he's doing, like, note-wise. Yeah, so I, yeah, I'm probably going to have to come down on, he probably cannot vocally sing, because if he had, or if he could, I feel like we would have heard that more in the 90s. Yeah. He would have found that platform and he would have used it. <laughs> so we do get him, yeah, audio recording here. We're just going to real quick go through the downward spiral that they start shooting 80s porn video or Jack Horner is going to start trying to shoot 80s porn stuff and you can tell that nobody's into it suddenly in contrast to Amber Waves we've got these women that have big fake breasts that are just caked in makeup mm. there are two women that are kind of lackadaisically trying to kiss in a hot tub such a great a great line from the cinematographer who's just like Okay, okay, yeah, go ahead and lick the whip. Yeah, okay, make out. Okay, that is, that's a good technical thing you're doing there. I just, I need some passion. Uh, we're looking. Yeah, like, where's the passion? Marky Mark will have been in the Brock Landers sort of porn series when he was in the 70s. Yeah. Be the, I mysterious spy by the name of Brock Landers. Instead, here in the 80s, we have a dude named Rock Harders, which is more on the nose than Brock Landers. Yeah, a little and bit. And he starts pointing, you know, guns at women, just saying lines like, suck it, bitch, and who's your daddy? Like, ah, oh, man, there's just, there's no subtlety there. I tell ya. What are you gonna there's do? There's a porn warehouse now. There's a porn warehouse. This this is the thing that always bugs me about, about this section, is that, I, I guess, like, really what the film is saying, like, that Jack is doing well on a, from a business point of view. Like, they are clearly moving product a lot. There are so many tapes being sent out, but he is left artistically unfulfilled by all this because he's like, ah, oh, it's just fucking 
videos, man. There's we're not telling a story at all. It's uh, you can just see like the like the disappointment on Jack Horner as he's like walking around this warehouse because he wants to be an artist. He has a pure vision, and this isn't it. <laughs> but yeah, the, the mass commercialism that's happening here with the video porn warehouse. There's a whole like lot going on with this whole montage of other characters. Like Buck is trying to get a loan from a bank. Uh, Amber and Roller Girl are doing all the cocaine in a room together. It, it, this is like this scene is just so um, it is like a masterclass in acting from both Julianne Moore and like Heather Graham, who is not not typically known for like giving heart wrenching performances, but here she is bringing it. Julianne Moore, like Amber waves, she's like, oh, I miss my baby boys. I, I miss I miss my son Jonathan and and Dirk, my my baby boy Dirk. Oh God, I miss him so much. And Heather Graham, like her eyes widening from like all the cooking she's doing, just like, will you be my mom? Are you my mom? I'm gonna ask if you're my mom and, and you say yes, okay? Are you my mom? Yeah, yeah, I'm your mom. I love you, mom. <laughs> and yeah, so they're, they're gonna have this whole thing. Maybe we should go for a walk, but I don't wanna leave this room. Me neither. <laughs> so they're just going into this like Coke spiral, but the room is gorgeous. It's another very like kind of 70s room, still in yeah. Jack Horner's Why house. Why would you leave that room? It's beautiful. We have Marky Mark is gonna have to, or Dirk Diggerler is gonna turn to turning tricks in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, they do try to buy their demo tapes, but they don't have the money to buy the demo tapes. <laughs> and the record producer that they're talking to is played by. Robert Downey Jr.'s dad, Robert Downey Sr. Iron Man Sr. He's pretty great in this in a tongue-in-cheek way. He's very quick cameo. Like, well, we don't have the money to pay you for the tapes yet. That's a YP, not an MP, a YP. Your problem. Your okay, problem. all right, you know, you're talking over my head with all this industry lingo, uh, YP, MP, me. I don't get it. What's crazy is like that that producer, they tell him, well, we can't pay you for the tapes until we take the tapes and make make money off of them. Well, that's a catch-22. And I thought to myself, okay, dude, if they don't understand YP, MP, do you really think they're going to understand what a catch-22 is? It's just, no, nah. nah, you're dealing with idiots. Just get them the fuck out. And they do. Buck is also denied a loan because he's a pornographer, even after he's given his presentation, which I just thought, okay, bank manager, you could have just led with that. Like, just tell him, oh, you're applying for a loan and you're a pornographer. Sorry, no, don't want to waste your time. Get on out of here. Yes, also historically accurate to the time period, Mm -hmm. by the way. And then we're going to get to two things happening simultaneously. Yeah. This 1980s porn is going to have culminated in... Poor roller girl driving around in a car with Jack Horner on the lookout, just driving around looking for dudes off the street to have sex with her while they film it. And Paul Thomas Sanderson tells us this is based on a real thing called On the Prowl. Yeah, with Jamie Gillis. I've actually seen some of that. Yeah, the way he describes it, he says, you do not know depression until you have watched On the Prowl. Like, oh, damn. And they pick up the dude from her high school back in the day that had done the blowjob face at her. And he is not a good lay. Mm. She is not having a good time. So they (laughs) kick him out of the car. He insults Jack Horner's how his porn has turned to this lack of quality. Yeah, your films suck nowadays anyway. And Jack is like, oh, you fucking did not, kid. And jumps out and just begins beating the shit out of him. And they pull him yeah, away. Yeah, and Heather Graham's going to join in mm-hmm. eventually because she's fed God, up. it is so ominous the way that, like, she, like, rolls around, scoots to halt next to him, and we see, like, this shot, like, looking up at her, 
looking down at him and just she just says, don't you ever fucking disrespect me again and begins to stomp him. Stomping a kid who is laying on the ground is one thing, but the fact that she's stomping him with those roller skates, like, I, I always just assume this guy's dead. Like, when they leave, they are leaving a dead guy with a caved-in skull on the ground. Maybe, but think of the sheer physicality dynamics it takes to kick someone while wearing roller skates. I think Roller Girl could do it. This astounds me. Like, you have to have so much core strength to just <laughs> stabilize on one roller skate while you're kicking the other without moving backwards. Yeah, yeah it's it's astounding when you actually think of. There the are some of scenes and shots in this movie where not her so much her core, but I like noticed like man, Heather Graham like has some definition in her legs. Like I think she spent a lot of time really roller skating. You can tell like there's some definition of like quads and hamstrings in her legs in a few moments. I'm like, wow, Heather Graham is. Yeah, she definitely had to be holding yeah. on to something out of frame though while she's. Oh, kicking. Sure. Because I don't think it's physically possible, actually, to like kick and not roll back. Well, unless you like lean up on that brake thing on the on the front of the skate. Um, simultaneously, Mark Wahlberg gets beaten up in a parking lot for turning tricks, while Buck is involved as a bystander in a robbery at a donut shop and ends up covered in blood and taking a whole bunch of money with him. And then Thomas Jane is going to show. Oh yeah, up. Thomas Jane is not in this movie. Not the first time he ever shows up, but. When he showed up, at first I was like, wait, is that Thomas Jane? <laughs> and I look it up, I'm like, it is Thomas Jane. That dude is such a weird chameleon oh, in a certain yeah. way. Because his face just looks like every other face, but not at the same <laughs> He's time. He's great. He's the one who like gets Dirk on the really hard drugs as the movie goes along. But now Thomas Jane and Marky Mar- and Thomas Jane and Dirk and Reed, they're concocting a plan. And that plan is to get a whole bunch of fake drugs and sell them. To our Eddie Nash stand-in. <laughs> Played gloriously by Alfred Molina. Yeah, he's pretty great. So they show up at his house with this bag of fake drugs, and they try to sell it to him for five grand. And this scene is so wonderfully bizarre. So to set the stage, yeah, they come into this guy's house, uh, greeted at the door by a guy who has a gun, and he, it's very clear he has a gun. He's a dangerous man, takes the drugs, and... There's like just this almost imp-like Chinese man walking around throwing off firecrackers, like just the kind of like the little tiny, they look like the tiny sticks of dynamite. He's lighting them, throwing them around. Uh, Sister Christian is playing on the stereo. <laughs> it's so fun. Uh, Alfred Molina is like walking around in like just a robe and speedos, just laughing all the time. Like, ah, you guys, how are you guys doing? Ah, oh yeah, this guy over here with the fireworks. It's so fucking funny with the fireworks. He throws them around. It's crazy. Ah, I love it. Ah. So this kid, this young man, it's of an ambivalent age, really, is mostly naked. Yeah, he's lighting fireworks off of the candles that are around. The room is very smoky. Mm -hmm. It's darkly lit. And once again, the sound is going to become very important in this scene because these firecrackers just keep going off at intervals. It's not a set interval, so you don't know exactly. Your body can never get completely complacent or used to hearing the interval of these just bangs and pops that sound a little bit like gunshots. They're very, very loud. And the characters in the scene are also reacting. They're flinching every time that these fireworks go off. They're hard to listen to. And this is also something that happened in the downward spiral. There was a score that just had this strange ding-dong heartbeat that kept staying steady and building. And it was very 
hard to listen to. It sets a certain type of anxious tone, and they're going to do it again here. Ask not for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for every fucking character in this movie. And as these just shots of firecrackers are going off, (laughs) this kid... Our Eddie Nash character is the only person who is not reacting to him. We learned in the commentary it's because he actually had earpieces in listening to his mixtape oh, yeah. that is also going on in the background, um, listening to Motorhead. Yeah, to hear John C. Riley tell it, it seems that they're flinching and reacting to the fireworks was not really acting. It was the, just them like, oh, God, oh, oh, wow, it's so loud. Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, fireworks going off right near you here are very, very loud, so it kind of sets the scene physically within that space as well on the film set. There's a bit where where Dirk just seems to mentally check out. Like the camera just holds on Mark's face for a little bit. His stare is like just so creepy and dead-eyed. And I've seen interviews with Mark Wahlberg where he's like, yeah, I think I just have a really good stare. You know, like that fireworks scene in Boogie Nights, I think I was just thinking about golf when we were filming that. I don't know, but the stare comes off really well. What can I say? Yeah, Anderson mentioned that he was filming the scene and Mark Wahlberg just actually legit seemed to check out. <laughs> so he let this camera just dwell on his face for a minute. And so perhaps he was trying to go to a place so that he wasn't hearing the firecrackers. But this, yeah, half-naked young man is just dropping firecrackers around, freaking everybody out. And then the character in the scene, like, I, I don't remember what his character name is. So I'm just going to keep calling him Eddie Nash just sort of turns to him for a second, looks back at the others and go, oh, that's Cosmo. He's Chinese. Like, that's the explanation <laughs> that they were looking oh, for. That like, answers every no. question we had about this scenario. Yeah, like, no follow-up questions. It's like, no, dude, like, why is, like, this kid naked in your house setting off firecrackers? Because that is not an explanation. Oh, God. We we transition from, from Sister Christian to Jesse's Girl on the soundtrack as it's all plain. Um, Alfred Molina, or the Eddie Nash stand-in, he's like, hey guys, check this out. Gets out a box, opens it, and they're like, oh, whoa, yeah, nice. And it's just a gun. He puts a bullet in and does a Russian roulette, like click on himself, like, ah, that was so fucked up. Ah, that's fucked up. We also established that his security guard has guns. So suddenly there are guns everywhere while the sound of these firecracker-ish gunshots are still going off. Eddie Nash is going to use a blowtorch to light some more candles and then his crack pipe like it's just this bizarre sort of thing and then an actual shootout is going to occur to loot balloons Uh, yeah that's right it just gets crazier and crazier finally like thomas jane's character has had enough he like because they all want to leave this is all fucked up they've got their money and they want to get out of there before the bodyguard finishes testing the drugs and finds out that it's just baking soda but thomas jane says like no no we're not leaving yet in the master bedroom, under the bed, there's a safe. And even the Eddie Nash standing is like, the fuck are you talking about, dude? And they get the guns out, and there's the shooting starts happening. They shoot the bodyguard. Eddie Nash runs into his room, grabs a shotgun, shoots Thomas Jane. They run out back out to the car while Luft Balloons is going off. Uh, they jump in the car, but like Eddie Nash standing is giving chase, just barely making away with their lives. Yeah, Eddie Nash is going to just come bursting out of the house with a shotgun, just, like, free shooting down the street. (laughs) Dude, Uh, maybe, like, make some other choices. But, no. Then Marky Mark, Dirk Diggler, is going to show up at Jack's place and just say, please help me. We have hit rock bottom. I need some help. Jack's like, it's okay, kid. It's okay. 
and he gets some help. Yeah. And then we're going to get middling swing montage. So once again, just more extended montage stuff. Buck is going to have sold out. He's no longer a cowboy. He's now trying for some sort of 80s cool dude. Hip hop thing. Aesthetic. Yeah. Hip hop. Yeah. Something that doesn't quite work for him. Even though he's playing country music in the commercial, apparently. That's true. He won't, he can't quite let just go, but he'll put on a go. backwards baseball cap or whatever. And... Roller Girl has gone back to school. John C. Riley is becoming a stage magician. Yeah, throughout the movie, we have like these moments of him doing like just you know sleight of hand tricks with cards and whatever. And now, yeah, he's a stage magician. All right, good for you. Then the Rodriguez's are going to. So Louis Guzman is going to have opened a nightclub with his brothers, and this is sort of all interesting choices once again thinking of this in the retrospect of time because we've looked at this golden age of the 70s porn and how the 80s ruined that a little bit or brought it back down and now we've got all of these guys that are starting to set out in new career paths that we can see in retrospect are going to be good for them for another brief flash of time and then are eventually going to go by the wayside. Mm -hmm. So a stereo shop is probably going to do all right for Buck in the 80s and the 90s, but then digital technology is going to hit in the 2000s and he's probably going to be searching for a job again. Hopefully he transitions into like high-def televisions as time goes on. I think Buck's smart enough to do that. Yeah, well, I mean, he's just going to have to actually switch careers once more at some point. The magicianry thing is going to do all right in the 90s. So (laughs) John C. Riley might have a brief shining moment as a stage magician, and then he's probably also going to have to revisit some things. Nightclubs are going to do really well in the 80s through the early 90s, and then they're going to take a hard hit in the 2000s. So in an interesting way, we're seeing these people gear up for another golden age of their professions, which at the time in 97, we wouldn't have yet had that step back moment. So this is just coincidental Mm -hmm. that they are picking these very of the moment next rising things that are going to be great for them for about a 10 year period. And then those are all going to crash as well. So that was a fun little time capsule thing. But we're really going to end here on this family of choice feeling that we've gotten Mm -hmm. throughout the movie. Well point, well put. And that's a really great thing about this movie. It's sort of the heart of the movie, this idea that we have all of these people who are participating in an alternative lifestyle of American culture. And they do care about each other. A lot of them live in the same house. So Jack Horner seems to be the backbone of this family. Amber Waves lives with him. Roller Girl now seems to live with him. And now Dirk Diggler seems to live with him. Jesse and Buck are going to be at the house constantly. They're painting out in his pool. Their baby is there. And John C. Riley is kind of holding it and helping it swim in the pool. So we have the family coming together. And it's not a golden age, but it's also not a depressing low mm-hmm. either. We've reached a middle ground in which these people at least a have each other. Silver or bronze age, you might say. Yeah. And I do love that, like, this final shot is going to be from the over the shoulder POV mm-hmm. of Jack Horner yeah. Burt Reynolds and he's going to have this little walk that he uh, does and he's going to walk through his space <laughs> and we're going to see all of these people we're even going to get a shot of a portrait of uh, William H. Macy's character that's been hung up in the house so he's still part of the family even though side note 
the oil paintings in this movie are terrifying. Oh, they are terrifying. And they are diegetically within the space created by Jesse because so, Jesse loves to paint oil paintings. She's just not that good at not it. Which so is kind of much. great. Bob Ross hadn't come to save us quite yet. But uh, yeah. but they support her art. They hang it up on the They're wall. Supportive she group. mostly draws pictures or paints pictures of her family members and the people that she cares it's, about. It is a, such a fast like because it's all like one shot of Jack like seeing the guys unloading the film equipment. He's like, come on, let's hurry it up. Going through and just checking on everything. Like, is this room clean? Are you ready to go here? Are we set up? And it, and there's just like kind of somber music playing as it goes along. And it ends so brilliantly as he goes into Amber Waves' room. She's getting ready, looking at herself in the mirror. And he stares at her in the mirror and what do you see? I see the sexiest bitch of all foxiest. time. Oh, the fox. Yeah. I see the foxiest bitch of all time. Kisses her on the shoulder, walks out and Amber just stares at herself in the mirror. What do you think of this stare? What do you think she's thinking in this moment when she's looking at herself? A uh, curious question indeed, because she is a porn star that's aging now, and she's just been affirmed in some way, so she might be feeling better about herself, but... Yeah, it's a it's a complicated yeah. collection. Why? What do you think she's thinking I, that, about herself? Because I, I was just like thinking about that, like asking myself, like, what is she probably thinking here? Like, is she looking in the mirror and just like not even knowing who's looking back at her? Is she looking at the mirror in quiet desperation of maybe a life that she can't get out of that, you know, has denied her, you know, the ability to see her son? Because there is a scene in the movie where she tries to get some visitation rights to her son, but... They rightly point out, no, you have a drug problem. You cannot see your son. And it's really hard to... I know the movie wants us to feel sympathetic towards Amber here, but it's justly pointing out, like, no, you have a drug habit, and you hang out with people on a very shaky side of the law. Having a child in that situation doesn't seem like a good idea to us. I mean, there are ways to make that work, obviously, but... The movie doesn't show us that Amber is capable of that. So you have to wonder if this this self-reflective moment she has at the very end is about that. Or it could be a lot of, about a lot of things. I think that and Paul Thomas Anderson does not explain what's going on in her head. He, he gives Julianne Moore props for her work in the movie and for that final look, but he never explains what is supposed to be going on in her head. Yeah, I I would push back on whether or not the pornographic environment is bad to have a child around, especially at the time that she was looking for custody. Mm. At least five years had passed, and her kid was able to call her once on the telephone yeah. prior, so it was old enough to at some point call on the telephone. So it's not very clear how old the kid is. This kid is probably past 10 yeah. now. And sex is not a bad thing to expose children to. It's not like the porn set is in the living room. Mm. So this kid can completely be around porn stars porn stars have children every oh, course, day like yeah. this is not a problem her cocaine addiction seems to maybe be the yeah. thing to legitimately mm -hmm. worry about that she doesn't seem to be able to stop that whether or not she would be able to stop it if she had her child around i don't know i don't know her full life but there is that yeah condescending note of the fact that she hangs around with pornographers and porn stars <laughs> means that it's a unsuitable environment for a child and it's like bitch it's fine yeah. well like i said when we were talking about showgirls there's a scene where one of the the dancers has her children in the dressing room dressing room with her and i was upset by that not because there are kids around strippers but just because this is a busy backstage area these kids are gonna fuck that up somehow 
Yeah, but sometimes you just don't have a choice because you don't have childcare options outside of your workspace. And if you're just at, like, you know, Uncle Jack Horner's house, just <laughs> up in the living room playing with toys, like, it's yeah. fine. Porn can be shot in the basement. Uh, I have no problem yeah, with that. Yeah, you know damn well Jack has, like, you know, done some soundproofing on those walls, so these kids aren't going to hear anything. And if they did, yeah, it's fine. Whatever. But after that look of ambiguous meaning, we get the last shot of the movie. London, what is the last shot of this movie? So, Marky Mark, Dirk Diggler, is still shooting Brock Landers films. Mm-hmm. And he's dressed a little bit Miami yeah, Vice. Yeah, we're in that, we're in that realm. So we're, we're officially in the Miami yeah. Vice era. And he's going to be sitting in his dressing room in Jack Horner's basement. Uh-huh. In front of a tissue box. Oh, yeah. you, you need those. You need those. Matches his bedspread mm-hmm. from earlier. Yep. So this is a great little production reuse mm-hmm. detail where they clearly just had extra fabric and they made this <laughs> tissue box and it made me happy. And then he's going to get up and he's going to be in his white Miami Vice pants and he's just talking himself up. Unzips, takes out his giant prosthetic <laughs> schlong. Yes, I'm going to go with the term schlong here. In all its 13 inch prosthetic glory. And he's going to say to himself, I am a star, a big, bright, shining star. I am a star. I am a star. I am a star. I am a star. End of film. Yeah. End on dick. Because his dick is going to see him through. It's going to get him through the dark It's going to be okay, man. Your dick. As we come forth to see again the sun. Your dick is still your dick. It's okay. I have to say the single most bizarre moment from the cast commentary. I don't know if you remember what I'm talking about here. On this ending scene. I would think that Mark Wahlberg would be discussing, you know, what he's thinking about, the lines, whatever. We get to this scene, and it's a conversation between Mark and Paul Thomas Anderson, and Mark just says, yeah, yeah, I broke my dick in half one time having sex. Really? Yeah, just fucking, you know, snapped on me. So he, when did he break his dick? He says he broke his dick when having sex one time. Just like in his life? Yeah. All right. He also says that when he, when his character gets his prosthetic dick out, uh, I, we keep saying prosthetic dick. In the movie, it really is a dick. You know, it's, it's diegetically, it's a giant dick. That's what it is. But he, when he gets his giant dick out, Mark Wahlberg says, "Yeah, that's about how big my dick is." Hot. No, it's not Mark Wahlberg. Fuck you, Mark Wahlberg. No, it is not. No, it's not. <laughs> And that's Boogie Nights, ladies and gentlemen. That is the 1997 epic of pornography, Boogie Nights, by one Paul Thomas Anderson. His second film. Second film after, like, something Hard Eight had to do with, I don't know, the gambling in Vegas, whatever the fuck. Who cares? Yeah, he seemed very bitter about the experience on his first yeah. film. That he lost a lot of control of mm-hmm. it. And was hell-bent on making this one three hours in <laughs> NC-17. People are like... You're going to have to calm down, and you're also going to have to make a vaguely sellable movie. It's surprising that this movie is as sellable as it mm-hmm. is, because it's not the tightest film by any means. Mm, no, not really, but I think that it's wonderful production design and the great cast they had to work with. I think that's why this film did as well as it did. And often when we talk about films, we talk about films that you know somehow failed or considered cult films or weren't appreciated in their time but that's not the case here boogie nights did fantastic at the box office when it came out yeah and the cast is a huge component of its success especially with the kind of director paul thomas anderson is which is to say 
he doesn't really direct. So he tends to, and this is by his own mm-hmm. mission. Yeah. So he tends to write his stuff and he wants the writing to speak for itself. And he often casts people he knows or friends of his that he likes and respects and wants to give them their moments. And he said multiple times in his commentaries that he sees the job of the director to be a fan that basically you point this camera at the actor and you let them do their thing Mm -hmm. because you like and you respect them. This is all fine and good and probably something that a lot of certain types of actors would love to hear and work with. The only problem being that unless you have an actor that can just deliver when you point a camera at them, you're going to be in trouble if you're a director and you see it as your job to just point a camera in their direction. (laughs) So he's very lucky that the friends that he casts in his films are very talented people. Like, you generally don't have that universal luxury that you don't ever have to tell an actor, this is how I want this scene. This is what I'm thinking about with this scene. Can you give me a little bit more emotion Mm -hmm. here? Because these people, when they're... Even talented actors, they don't necessarily know a director's vision or tone or how it's going to come out. So they generally need some sort of directing. Mm -hmm. A little bit. A a, a bit. I think that there are there's a happy middle ground there. They're they're obviously in filmmaking. There's no correct way to always do this. But I think Paul Thomas Anderson, he mentions uh, that he's had actors ask him, Something crazy like what? Uh, what was my childhood like? What was the character? What what kind of grades the character get in elementary school? And he's like, what the hell does that have to do with anything? Just you, you, this is a he's a pornographer and he he's upset at his wife because he did the thing. He's not talking about William H Macy. He's like the whole his commentary. Uh, he just gushes so much on the cast and it is like it's an endearing thing to to listen to. Um, But his reaction to this idea that an actor might want to know some of the detailed backstory of the character that came before this moment is very revealing in the way that Paul Thomas Anderson generally approaches storytelling, which is much more the events that unfold around these characters mm -hmm. rather than character-driven stories because as I mentioned at the beginning this is going to feel like it should be a character-driven film because there are so many characters and they seem to be going through this trope idea of a roller coaster arc but then we actually see that these characters aren't really making decisions they're not really growing in any way we don't actually know a lot about their interior spaces we are using them as a vehicle to explore larger social stuff that's happening at the time the true story of this film is not the story of Dirk Diggler it's not the story of Amber Waves it is the story of pornography in America and its own historical roller coaster that it experienced and took and the different forms that it took. So like the events and the objects tend to actually be the true stars in focus and meaning and takeaway from Anderson's films. So it makes sense that he doesn't care about the background of a character because he doesn't actually care about his characters. And that's fine, but that's just a very specific Anderson style. But this is a film, as you said, about pornography, about a golden age of pornography. So when we say the golden age of pornography, Mm -hmm. it's not so much that everything that's being produced at this time is the quality stuff. It more means that this was a period of time in which 
there was a certain market demand for its material and there was a potential economic profit to be gained from interacting with such material. So in the way that the onset of kind of the Silicon Valley era in the early 2000s, right, became this kind of digital tech golden age that has since started to wane a little bit. There were certainly really bad startups that came out of that era too, but if you were in tech at that time, Mm -hmm. that could be potentially extremely lucrative. And so the golden age of porn is at a time in which porn as a medium became potentially a great way to make a lot of money. It became a medium that started to be taken seriously by audiences and by major film critics. And so there, there's a moment in Boogie Nights where we do hear somebody kind of read out loud over one of the upswing montages different porn reviews from mainstream film critics at the time that were like amber waves luscious whatever uh that do you know who one of the film critics who gave like deep throat a good review was roger ebert our boy roger ebert like it's (laughs) so weird that he keeps coming up in a positive way but roger ebert it's not that weird though roger ebert's great yeah he he was was a great great film critic (laughs) there you go but yeah so he started reviewing some porn at the time too celebrities were very interested in porn suddenly in the 70s. They started to go to theaters. Porn got mainstream releases. And at one of the award ceremonies I mentioned earlier from the uh, American Adult Film Association, people like Francis Ford Coppola were showing up at these things, like right after he just made Godfather. That's where we were. Johnny Carson brought it up on his talk show. Like It was all this kind of stuff. And what really jump-started the golden age of porn, so the golden age of porn is known as 1969 to 1984. (laughs) 69. So, yeah, that's an easy uh, number to remember, the golden age of porn, 69. Sorry, I couldn't help. And where this is actually going to start is with a little movie by Andy Warhol. Oh, that guy. Blue Movie. Blue Movie. What's Blue Movie about? Not a whole lot, actually. (laughs) Blue Movie is going to be the first, alongside a 1970s movie called Mona by Bill Osco, are going to be the first two movies to have explicit sex scenes that are shown in mainstream theaters. Yeah. Or that had a theatrical distribution. And from what I can tell of Blue Movie, it really is just... It's two people in an apartment in New York, and we just kind of watch them talk about, oh, yeah, the Vietnam War is going on. Like, okay, let's go ahead and make some lunch. Okay. Hey, you want to fuck? Yeah, okay, let's fuck. Ten minutes later. Well, we did that. Okay, what else we got going on today? So it is a very long movie with nothing else happening, and there's about ten minutes of sex in there. Yeah, it's, if anybody has seen Andy Warhol films, it's an Andy Warhol film. Wait a minute. (laughs) Plot is not a major concern. Are you saying that not much happens in an Andy Warhol film? That is exactly what I'm saying, yes. weird. Yeah, it's just going to be a bunch of images. Yeah, it's just going to be people fucking and talking about the Vietnam War and, like, doing the dishes. And then we get Mona, which is about a girl who's promised not to have, who has made a promise not to have sex until she gets married. That doesn't go so well. And then we're going to follow this up, this idea that we can have these films that have explicit sex in them. Andy Warhol does play a huge role in that, not only that he put these explicit scenes in a movie, but that postmodernism had gained a certain type of cash or cachet kind of idea mm-hmm. that 
it was art, right? What Andy Warhol was doing was art. It was pop art. And so suddenly this film with explicit stuff in it had artistic merit. Some of these films did also get charged with obscenity laws. So they're going to be Deep Throat and Behind the Green Door coming out in 1972. They're going to get theatrical distribution, but they are also going to get prosecuted. And so the censorship of pornographic or obscene materials, once again, we looked into this a little bit in 8mm um, or in the 8mm episode as well, but due to the Comstock laws, there were still on the books this idea that pornography was not protected by First Amendment rights of free speech because obscenity is not protected by free and speech and porn is obscene. And thus, The definition of obscenity was a difficult thing to nail down. Yeah, there was no specific parameters I'm, for I'm pretty sure that. around this time that there was a Supreme Court case concerning obscenity where they had to change the definition to lacking anything useful to say to not having any merit for society or something like there was some terminology they had to change around that really fucked up the mainstream distribution of films like this. Yes, it had to have artistic merit or scientific merits. And this was the case in 1973, the Miller versus California court case that set up the Miller test. It tweaked what does and doesn't constitute as obscenity. It's still not super clear, but this was both a good thing and a bad thing for the golden age of porn, because prior to the Miller case, distributing these weren't technically legal or protected in any way. Deep Throat and Behind the Green Door did get prosecuted from many different angles. It got stopped from being distributed by different theaters. So these weren't just magically exempt. And what's going to happen here with Miller versus California is setting up this idea of, oh, well, as long as it has artistic merit. So the people are going to be like, all right, well, if we make films that we can try to say has some sort of artistic or literary merit, AKA they also serve as films, maybe we can like wedge in some hardcore sex in there. And this is where you get things like the devil and Miss Jones, the devil and Miss Jones, the best of the golden age porn by many accounts and standards in 1973. Are you familiar with the devil and Miss Jones? Uh, devil and Miss Jones. I don't, I didn't know too much about that. I was looking into things. Uh, the opening of Misty Beethoven apparently was a very, another big one. I think that came a little bit later. That was 77, 76. So no, I don't know about too much about devil and Miss Jones. So the devil and Miss Jones is an old spinster who's depressed and this is a, a crazy plot for porn by the way we're just throwing that out there to begin with devil and miss jones old spinster is going to commit suicide at the beginning of the film and learn very quickly that she is now stuck in limbo because she lived a, a holy life and yet the suicide has prohibited her from access to any sort of heavenly ah, realm damn it all. and thus she's just stuck in limbo Miss Jones doesn't want to be stuck in limbo, so she bargains with the limbo caretaker to go back to Earth for a set amount of time to earn her place in hell by becoming the embodiment of lust and have sex with a whole bunch of people. And so she's going to do this, and she's going to enjoy it. But then her time runs out, and yet she has earned her place in hell. And she gets there, and she's a little worried because she's like, oh, I don't want to be tortured. And they're like, well, you're not going to be tortured in a traditional manner. And how this is going to end is that she ends up being stuck in a room in a bed with this with this guy that she really wants to have sex with, but he doesn't want to have sex with her. He's more interested in trying to catch flies, this, like, fly that's in the room. <laughs> 
a very weird avant-garde ending. And so, yeah, her torture is now she's addicted to sex, but there's nobody there to have sex with. But this is what masturbation is for. Mm. This, in a fun way, it was the seventh highest grossing film for the year. That's like out of all the right. films, not just porn films, <laughs> just all the films, like seventh highest grossing. And it's still one of the highest grossing porns with inflation uh, factored in and whatnot. It is also going to spawn a whole bunch of sequels over the years that kind of read in a Friday the 13th kind of way where they just have these like great, (laughs) some of them are more creative titles than others. So just very quickly, The Devil Miss Jones is in Miss Jones is 1973. The Devil and Miss Jones 2 is going to come out in 1982. The Devil and Miss Jones 3, A New Beginning is 1986. The Devil and Miss Jones 4, The Final Outrage also comes out in 86. The Devil and Miss Jones 5, The Inferno, comes oh. out in 1995. And then we just get the boringly named The Devil and Miss Jones 6 in 1999. Oh, that creativity in 1999. They didn't even like, go with The Devil and Miss Jones 666? Nope, that was they just went right with the, there! The Devil and Miss Jones 6. How could yeah, you it's, not? it's really sad. Come on! So many missed opportunities. Oh, and then damn it all. The new Devil and Miss Jones is 2005. Was there ever like a next generation version of all this? Or... No, because the last one was The Devil and Miss Jones, The Resurrection in 2010. Okay, did they at least, like, capitalize the E in Resurrection? Ooh. You know, I don't know if they did or not. I'd have to double-check, like, the the porn box for that. There is, like, a collector set, I think, out there somewhere that has all of these. This is where I, like, got this from. And then there is an unofficial, an unofficial sequel. I don't know why this one is not counted among the repertoire, but it also came out in 91 called The Devil and Miss Jones 2, The Devil's Agenda. But for some reason, that one has been scrubbed from the canonical lineup. I feel like we can make more sense out of the sequels to Troll and Troll 2 than we can The Devil and Miss Jones sequels. Part of me just wants to have a Devil's and Miss Jones marathon where I like access and find all of them. Oh boy, yeah. This is neither here nor there. But yeah, so the Golden Age had these big theatrical releases of stuff. People were talking about it. And this is, of course, 73. So this is right around the jump off time that Boogie Nights is we're going to enter the scene four years later in 77. So when we're still on this upswing. So historically, this fits in right alongside Mm -hmm. everything else. What is also going to fit in alongside everything else is that there's another court case in 1973, not porn-related, but child custody-related, that determined prior to 73, largely courts just automatically awarded custody to the mother Mm -hmm. because there's still this idea of maternal instincts and that the child is always best with its mother. Mm -hmm. Divorce also wasn't super common in the 50s and 60s, so this didn't come up a lot. 1973 is going to have this court case that officially deems that child custody laws should not automatically go to the mother, but should be assessed on a case-by-case basis. So we also have Amber Waves, or Julian Moore's character, going through the custody battle for her son and what is actually a very nascent, only four years in the making, childy custody kind of hearing court system and ruling. And so that's going to complicate things further, especially when we have these new laws that are coming on the books. There's a lot of buzz about the fact that 
mothers might not always be the best person for the kid to go with and this is really gonna work against her in her child custody suits all the way through so that also is very historically time period accurate as is yeah. our John Holmes. Has anybody here seen my old friend John? Johnny C. Holmes. Just a kid from Ohio. John Holmes oddly had a very religious uh, upbringing. He went to you know, Sunday school all the time when he was a kid. Spent some time in the military. There's a lot of theories that he had a very bisexual experience in the military. Yeah, as many military men do. As you do. That's how you have a good time. What can you say? Details of his life are a little hard to piece together just because he told a lot of crazy lies in his life. The The main story about how he got into pornography apparently is that he was at a some bar for poker night, went to the bathroom, and the guy who was in the, the urinal right next to him was a guy who worked in porn so apparently this guy had a habit of just you know looking over and checking out the guy next to him and saw john holmes he's like you know you really should think about pornography check it we out need to get that dick on screen there's something wonderful behind those pants just waiting to get out so i don't know maybe not something terribly different from what we see in boogie nights but definitely less gr- glamorous i think that scene would have been a lot uh, a lot, lot less fun if it were a scene of Eddie and Jack Horner just going to the bathroom at the same time and Horner just looking over next to him like, hey, you should get into porn. Actually, I think that scene sounds delightful. <laughs> you I would. do want Burt Reynolds just peeking over a urinal. Oh, boy. And well, having a reaction. Well, yeah, so John, well, he was just like writing the, the kind of the, he got into porn at just the right time. Uh, because, like as you said, this was the the start of the golden age of porn, when there were there was a lot of effort put into you know story sets and what have you, and this was a weird thing I came across while trying to do a, like a little bit of research into this. I wanted to go and find the films from this era, from the golden age of porn, like the Johnny Wad series or The Devil and Miss Jones Behind the Green yeah, Door. Yeah, so to contextualize that, John Holmes, his most famous character. Like Dirk Diggler and Brock Landers played a character called Johnny Wad in a series of pornographic films where he played a private detective or a private dick, if you will, and he extracted information in surreptitious ways. Yeah, there were there were a lot of these films. They weren't numbered or anything. There were just like a lot of different uh, titles to them, but there were like ten, I think, at least ten films in the series. And in trying to find these, I came across something very strange. There is no, like, there's one, there is definitely not a streaming service for the golden uh, age of films. Two, trying to find these, like, if you did something like, say, uh, The Jade Pussycat, which was one of the Johnny Watt films, you go to YouTube, type that in. Obviously, you're not getting any sex. You are going to get just the clips from that movie that like are around the sex so just the story and you know is that the one that's basically like a a porn version of the maltese falcon sort of it's really just a lot of people sitting in different rooms saying who has the jade pussycat do you have it do you have it i don't think they have it i think they have it we're gonna try and find it you guys go find it and then they okay, leave the room. Okay, so the porn version of the Maltese Falcon, because that's pretty much all that happens to the Maltese Falcon as well. More or less. And then if you go to something like Pornhub or X Video, you know, U Porn, whatever, any of those sites, and type in a Johnny a Johnny Wad film, 
you'll get the sex scenes, but you won't get everything around it. So you're not getting, you know, all the material that contextualizes the sex, which is a strange thing to say, I know, like, why, why does that need contextualization? Well, to give the filmmakers their due, they were telling stories around the sex. So, you know, we were given a reason for John to suddenly, you know, have sex with someone. There was a purpose to it in the stories, but you can't piece any of this together through just searching them online. You'll get scenes that are not sex, and then only the sex scenes. But a weird thing I noticed was that I couldn't get, like, both of the same film. Because I thought for a second, okay, well, maybe if I get, like, the, the non-sex scenes from this movie and the sex scenes from the same movie, I can download them, cut them together, and get the whole thing. But that was never the case. So... This is really our argument that there needs to be some sort of streaming service for these films. Yes, and it should be called The Golden Stream. <laughs> yeah, it should. You know I'm right. <laughs> oh, God. But you are. But what I really began to notice, like just looking at the non-sex scenes that legitimately impressed me is that John Holmes was a pretty good actor. Uh, I mean, by the standards of pornography. And I think really what made him great is that he was very believable. In a scene where his character is mad, I believe that John Holmes is mad in that scene. In a scene where he's happy, I believe that he's happy. Smug, I believe that he's smug. In a scene where his head hurts because the Chinese countess, who he just had sex with in an effort to get to the jade pussycat, hit him over the head with an ashtray, I believe that his head really does hurt because the Chinese countess they just had sex with was trying to get the... Whatever, you get the idea. But this is like heads and tails above any actor that you'll say that you'll see in the rest of the movie because the other actors are just... They'll say lines at different levels of volume, but there's really no emotion put towards them. You know, if a character is angry because he doesn't have the jade pussycat it might be something like damn it i should have this thing by now why don't i have the jade pussycat i've been looking for this thing for years it's what i want but the actor says why don't i have the jade pussycat yet i have been wanting this for years why don't i have this yet it's that uh level of acting it uh really oddly remind me of was a time from professional wrestling in uh, the late 90s yes david arquette did a little like run on WCW World Championship Wrestling and like somehow he became like their world champion. It's like considered one of the, the dumbest things in pro wrestling. But David Arquette is an actual actor. He could emote in ways that all the other wrestlers could not. So when you saw him like acting on the wrestling show, you're like, oh my God, this is like Oscar worthy material that he's he's doing here. That's incredible. And in a strange way, there is a relationship to work from professional wrestling to pornography. Wrestlers are hired on their merit as strongmen, bodybuilders, and people who are able to do stunts. And the people who work in porn are hired on their looks and on, you know, how big their body parts are. But neither of these professions are they hired on their on the ability of them as actors. And yet they are expected to do a lot of acting all the time. So this leads to really not terribly compelling performances on either medium. But every now and then, you get someone who can actually pull it off. And in the case of you know professional wrestling, that was David Arquette doing the dumbest thing that you could be doing. But in pornography, that was John Holmes who actually could act. And really, unfortunately, he was given scripts that didn't demand too much of him. But I think he honestly, 
I think he's a better actor than Boogie Nights really tries to portray him as. There are scenes from Exhausted, the documentary about him, which I couldn't find the entirety of. I could find clips of it. And that they are like copied, you know, like word for word, set for set, shot for shot in Boogie Nights. And like there's a scene in Boogie Nights where we're at a bar and Dirk Diggler says, or Brock Landers in the scene says, are you here? Are you here alone? Yeah, I've heard the food here is pretty good. Good. It's better than good. It's fantastic. It's some of the best food in the city. And it's meant to be like, he's not a very good actor. He's kind of monotone. But if you look at the same scene in Exhausted, or from whatever film that it actually comes from, we have Johnny Wad, who says, oh, are you here alone? Yeah, I hear the food here is pretty good. Well, no, no, it's not just good. It's it's great. I mean, this is, it's some of the best food in the city. And he, like, is getting excited and showing more emotion than his counterpart in Boogie Nights does. So, in an odd way, in researching Johnny Holmes, I think that Boogie Nights doesn't really do him justice. So maybe the problem is that Mark Wahlberg is not actually as good of an actor as Johnny <laughs> Holmes. And so when he tries to emulate Johnny Holmes, he can't quite do it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it, a nuanced it, thing. Yeah, I think that that was the most surprising thing to me about research of this. I thought, oh, wow, Johnny Holmes, he really could act. But at the same time, he was just there. He was there because of his dick. Even if he was a good actor, he wasn't there because of his acting. He just had a big dick. And that's what he was there for. I couldn't find exhausted the documentary that that sec that middle section of the movie is like really like copying in a big way but there is this interesting youtube video out there when booking nice was coming out on laserdisc there's a special feature that didn't port over to the dvd i guess for rights reasons or whatever but it was paul thomas anderson giving commentary to about 35 minutes of exhausted and one of the craziest thing he says is after watching this thing i mean at the end of the day this is a documentary about a guy's dick. The guy himself doesn't matter. John Holmes, I mean, he lives the, the ultimate male fantasy. Oh, he's got a huge dick. But you realize this is a bad thing. It's a horrible thing to have a big dick because that's all that he is to people. He's just a large penis. That is all that has to arrive at the scene. John Holmes could mumble his words and it wouldn't matter. All that matters is, can your big dick be erect? It can, great. It can't. You're worthless to us. Well, first of all, at least he was worth something because <laughs> we get the sense from both Bookie Nights and from John Holmes as a person that maybe he wouldn't have been anything in the board world if it wasn't for his big dick. Like, that was his ticket in. Two, whether or not that big dick could get erect did not remain consistently something that could happen. Yep. And that's when we hit the 1980s in our actual John Holmes story. So John Holmes was a prolific porn actor in the 70s. He is credited in over 573 films, and that is a lot of porn to act in. He was one of the guys. But then he did turn to coke. He got addicted. His dick could not get hard or stay hard. And he uh, got to into drugs as our Dirk Diggler character does and got caught up with this dude named Eddie Nash who was a prolific nightclub owner at the time out in Los Angeles and at some point Jenna Holmes was like well I think Eddie Nash has a bunch of stuff that we could probably steal and rob and allegedly he wasn't there the night that people went in and broke into Eddie Nash's house to steal his shit but Eddie Nash traced it back to John Holmes 
demanded to know what was up, John Holmes told him, and so Eddie Nash, in retaliation vengeance, killed four people or had other people do his dirty work for him. Four people ended up dead, and John Holmes ended up on trial for the Wonderland murders. The murders are not something that's going to be covered in Boogie Nights, just this Eddie Nash figure and the idea that people Mm. were caught up in this drug ring and violence and breaking and entering and robbing and whatnot. The movie Wonderland, however, is going to continue our Johnny Holmes story and look more at the murder side of John Holmes's career. Mm. Uh, yeah, John Holmes as played by Val Kilmer, who, yeah. who we, we, we enjoy. We like Val Kilmer. I do anyway. He's okay. He's cool. So John Holmes has inspired two mainstream movies, Boogie Nights and Wonderland, that both came out around the same time. Did it? I mean, well, yeah, around the, relatively speaking, I think Wonderland was somewhere around 2003, so it would have been about six years after this film, but still, Yeah, you know. that all seems like the same kind of time period in cinema in a weird little way, just because these were things that had happened in the early 80s, yeah. and so for this resurgence of interest around the millennium in John Holmes, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, weird story I've always heard about Wonderland was that at one of its screenings, guests were given as a gag gift uh, rulers that were 13 and a half inches long. Yes, I have heard that too. Mm-hmm. So okay. that might have been true. I think it probably was. It seems like a promotional shtick. Where do you get those? What store in ter- are those sold at? In terms of why it's hard to find a lot of these golden age or porno chic is another term we throw around for the golden age of porn, which fun trivia fact was coined by the New York Times. An article in the New York Times. Thanks, New York Times. By Ralph Blumenthal. But this uh, porno chic time period in porn, there are a lot of rights distribution issues with a lot of these porn titles. And Mm. so different porn companies trying to claim rights after the fact, which they weren't necessarily initially registering because of all of the obscenity First Amendment speech issues (laughs) that there's this whole clusterfuck of at first, like they couldn't claim them because it was illicit material. And then once it was okayed, then people trying to claim it became a a hot mess. So distribution rights become a thing in golden age porn, Mm. but we should look past all that for the betterment of humanity. And somebody should start the golden stream. Stop dicking around and get to it. (laughs) Top five. (laughs) Oh, yeah, right, top five. Right, uh, that whole thing. Okay, well, uh, my my honorable mention goes to that prosthetic. Good job with that. Yeah, it was a really believable prosthetic. Yeah, it's like, I don't... It's good work. It's hard to hit, like, the Uncanny Valley with that because I don't know what... I mean, I have a pretty good idea of what a penis looks like, but on that scale, I'm at a loss. So, like, okay, yeah, looks, uh, looks pretty accurate. Very good. My number five... I think I'll give it up to John C. Riley because I really, uh, he is so, so lovely in this thing and just a, a delightful doofus and seems like a really fun guy. Yeah. All right. So my honorable mention goes out to porn itself <laughs> and all of the people who have participated over the years in the face of obscenity charges and adversity to bring the world pornography. Fight the good fight. We salute you. Yes. Number five, Burt Reynolds. All right. Or Burt Reynolds. I, I always want to put an N in his first name. I don't know why. But Burnt Burt Reynolds? Reynolds is so subtly delightful mm-hmm. in this movie. He is playing this grandfatherly paternal role to a misfit group of family of choice pornographers. 
And he does it in a very believable way. There are so many times where his character could have gone and veered into a very skeezy direction, and it never does. He stays this very chill, nurturing post in this whole thing where he, yeah, he just brings it. It's a very curious cordiality and nicety. He's just, he's a straight up guy, you know, he is... He's the ubermensch of porn. Um, well, yeah. My number four was Burt Reynolds, um, because for all the reasons that you mentioned there, just for the fact that this movie like brought him to so many people. When I first saw this movie, I had some vague idea of Burt Reynolds. I think I had seen Smoking the Bandits with my parents on TV at some point. But besides that, didn't really know too much about him, but... It's just always fascinating to me, like to see such a, a milestone performance in an actor's very long career, because it's hard to picture what he was doing prior to this thing when he was around the same age. You know, it just seems like in my head when I picture Burt Reynolds, it's like Smoking the Bandit, the Longest Yard Days, and then Boogie Nights Days, and after that, not Gator. Which <laughs> <laughs> I really feel is the superior movie of the book. <laughs> Striptease is in there had his uh, spectacular performance of striptease <laughs> which will have come a few years before boogie it's nights down in my toes the vaseline it's all squishy oh yeah yeah apparently so by all by all stories he did not like the movie when he first saw it apparently he tried to fire his agent uh, for allowing him to do the movie i don't know if you really read between the lines in the comments made on the director and cast commentary, you get the feeling that Burt Reynolds was not fun to work with or that he just he had his own style of doing things that was kind of clashing with the younger cast members in the in the group there. So it's ambiguous as to whether or not he hated the movie itself because it, he did seem to not like the material that it was based on. But he did later kind of start saying that he thinks it's an extraordinary film. It was just working on it was not his favorite thing. By all accounts, him and Paul Thomas Anderson did not get along okay, on set yeah. to the point that like fists flew. Like they got into a fist fight once on set and where it looked like Burt Reynolds is going to try to punch Tom, Paul Thomas Anderson in the face. And Paul Thomas Anderson actually wanted him on Magnolia. Like Paul Thomas Anderson seemed like he was a big fan of Burt Reynolds, even mm. in the commentary. And Burt Reynolds is like, I'm not, I did one Paul Thomas Anderson movie. I will never do another. Like he did not like working with him. I don't know why, but although there was in Anderson's commentary, it was really fun to listen to because he's a little bit rambling. He brings in a lot of kind of cool outside stuff, Mm -hmm. including talking about how there are a lot of stuff that he could have cut from this movie, but he didn't want to because he just, he was entertained by it. He liked watching it. (laughs) Yeah, he's just making the movie for him. And yeah, the movie could have been less dragging if he had cut stuff, but he didn't want to. So I think it's that kind of maybe mentality as well. But Burt Reynolds was, as a more old school kind of guy, did not like the, well, we're just going to throw it in there because it's fun. Oh. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. But he does have a, a certain type of... He, he walks that line between yeah. being charming and aggravating. I could see I could it. see somebody like tipping on either end. Yeah. Mm. You're number four. My number four, I'm just going to lump all these people together, are 
all of the music, the soundtrack supervisor and the score um, composer. And so basically anything to do with sound in this movie, Mm -hmm. the sound effects and the sound mixing are really great. Like those gulps and of air or when you switch over to the porn lens that we see the sound changes right because we've transferred to different mediums so the sound in terms of its distance from the camera is going to register and they do that they pay attention to these details in this movie the soundtrack is phenomenal i remember owning the soundtrack on cd back in the day and it came it was at least a two disc thing i don't remember if there were three discs but the music in this took up two discs there's a lot of music a lot of songs here because you often you will get just the snippets of the songs, but on the soundtrack, you would get the whole thing. So, yeah, there are lots of snippets of lots of different songs. Full version? Yeah, I guess they had taken up two discs. But we get even more of the soundtrack in the film than most films. Mm-hmm. So even though you still get a fragment of it, most of the songs that we have in this movie and its soundtrack play for at least a minute and 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Like, we get a substantial amount. Yeah. And music pretty much plays throughout. There's either going to be a score or there's going to be a soundtrack. And the songs selected from the soundtrack are very time period appropriate. They're tonally appropriate. And they just really set each scene phenomenally. So, yeah, the the matching and getting the rights or securing the rights to all of these songs that in the yeah. in 1997, which were these big songs of the 70s, is impressive. Considering like what an issue it always seems to be to get certain songs ready to go, the fact that they just knew that they had Sister Christian, they knew they had Jesse's Girl and they knew that they had 99 Luft Balloons go by whatever, that's pretty impressive. So, I mean, that really does speak to how much power they were putting behind this movie when they were making it. So, props to them on that. My number three is kind of like yours, just in a different realm. I just want to lump together set designers, uh, the people who are the people who are putting together the props, people who are putting together the locations to create the look of this film. Because, like I said, the miracle of this movie is that the 70s look as beautiful as they do. I love, absolutely loved, loved, loved every scene in Jack's house. The long tracking shots of his place are just beautiful to me. Uh, the long, the crazy times that we go through, like Dirk's place, and we just see all the ridiculous shit that he has bought. It's just so fun to watch happen. Uh, how beautiful that, you know, the Corvette that he buys is. Like, all the, the glorious cars in this movie. And the outfits, for the most part, are pretty good. I think the outfits are, like, they're ridiculous 70s, but I, they may have toned them down enough to where they're not too ridiculous. I think the most ridiculous outfit is the one that Dirk Diggler wears at the... Uh, the first or the second annual uh, adult film awards where it's like that blue suit that is like that super reflective lapels on it. It's yeah, pretty crazy, but the look of the film, just everyone who made that happen. Wonderful job. Yeah. It's very hyper intensive time period, appropriate clothing going Mm -hmm. on that you can tell when they switch from 1979 to like 1981, mm. even though it's just a two period different, like you're like, okay, there's enough just subtle changes going on that let yeah. you know we are now in the early 80s, which is why three also for me, production design. Ah, okay. Everything about this production, because as we mentioned, even though this feels like it would be a character film, it is an events and it is a time period film. And the time period stuff that they have going on here is incredibly accurate. It's incredibly detailed. And one thing to think about with production design that is easy to forget in hindsight is the obtainability of certain materials. This film was shot in the mid-90s 
about the 70s or this kind of mid 70s period right now is actually a really great market time to get 1970s mid-century furniture Mm. and that's usually because estate sales are happening and the people who initially bought that furniture are just now kind of we're in that midst of the period where they have reached an older age and are starting to kind of die off and leaving this furniture behind And we see antiquing actually happen in waves like that. Antique fads are generally set, strangely enough, by estate sales. But in the 90s, this furniture was not as findable because those people still generally had that furniture still in their (laughs) house. They weren't giving it away as much as they are today. So like cultivating the space, because it would have been a time where the 70s stuff wasn't as popular aesthetically. So it wasn't getting a huge market resale value and the people who were holding on to this stuff instead of just donating it hadn't died yet. So it's actually more impressive that they were able to find this stuff in the 90s than they if they were sort of furnishing a house over the last eight years to look like the 70s. But yeah, production design. Phenomenal. Who's your number two? My number two, uh, this is mostly from my 17-year-old self. My number, my number two is Heather Graham. Because I just loved her so much in this movie when I was a kid. Uh, it was the first thing, first, really the first thing I, well, no, actually the first thing I ever saw Heather Graham in was the second Austin Powers movie, which is, I think she's more known for that than this. And she's not honestly very good in that second Austin Powers movie, as opposed to this, where she just gets, she gets some scenes of like just powerhouse performances that she gets to give that I don't think that she often gets to do she's definitely done some pretty wild stuff i know that you and i have like watched a film with her and i think it was a carrie ann moss uh that involved cannibalism on some level i believe trying to remember what this movie was now had had ethan hawk in it and it was a film about heather graham she plays a, a woman who is obsessed with cooking and Carrie Ann Moss is like a neighbor of hers that she's always trying to give food to, but Carrie Ann Moss is apparently also bulimic. And oh my god, I vaguely remember this in the recesses of my mind. Yeah, uh, like Carrie Ann Moss plays it like she's in a completely different movie, which is really weird. And they become lovers, and then I think towards the end, Carrie Ann Moss is like, I don't want to eat, I want to be eaten. And... It, the movie. How have I blocked out this movie so completely? We might have to watch this one. This sounds like a contender. <laughs> I, have to, I have to find that sometime. Point being, uh, yeah, Heather Graham, she... I don't think that she really gets her due as a performer. And this is a movie that really let her shine in a big way like a few other films do. And also, I God, I just had such a huge crush on her when I was a kid, so... Apparently, Anderson did as well, because I, I did like in the commentary where he brought up that, well, I had remembered Heather Graham as everyone else does as the dead girl in the attic from Drugstore Cowboy. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, buddy, that's exactly what everybody knows Heather Graham for uh, is the dead girl in the attic from Drugstore Cowboy. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I really like the way Anderson's mind works. Interesting cat, yeah. <laughs> number two for me. Uh, my number one and two kind of go back and forth. Okay. It's, it's hard, mm-hmm. but... She should actually probably be number one, but I'm going to put Julianne Moore in number two. Okay. She's so good in this. Yes. She's so very, very good. Mm-hmm. Every micro-movement she's doing <sighs> is just a really great performance. Well, steal my thunder, because my number one was Julianne Moore. Um, I, I really, what I think sets it for me, because like number two and number one, you know, Heather Graham, Julianne Moore, just that scene with them together. 
was just so fun to watch. Like I've seen this movie so many times and there's just both of them bring so much to that. Julianne Moore brings so much to all the little things in this movie that don't have, that she really didn't even have to. She could have just been there, been beautiful and that would have been it. But she brought so many other things to this was so good at acting poorly. And she could have played that off as a joke, but she plays it as a character who is really into what she is doing. And just, that haunting stare towards the end, like will never leave my, my mind. So yeah, Julianne Moore, my number one. My number one, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, Scotty. give it up. Rest Little in peace. Scott. Rest in peace, Philip Seymour Hoffman. He is oh. not in this movie enough. No. I can't stress that enough. Like that's, he is not in this movie that's enough. That's really true. And, yeah, I was thinking about that while well, the movie was happening. Like I remember him so well from this movie. And then I thought, wow, he's actually not in that many scenes is he that's and the scenes that he is in he's not even saying all that much no but in the background if you pay attention to him and the scenes that he's in goddamn, is he delivering on every single second a background detail i noticed on this that i had never noticed before in that scene where dirk reed and jack are in the hot tub you can actually see scotty in the background cleaning the pool yeah, he's, he's just, so he is in a lot of scenes, but he's kind of in the background. He's such a fabulous character that he really should have had more screen time. Just uh. every mannerism is working together. But his little sad pants face when he's shopping with them, his reaction. So he's also in the scene where they go and they're trying to get Robert Downey Sr. to give them the record tapes. Oh, yeah. Like he's in the back supporting them. So mm-hmm. he apparently also quit the porn business because Dirk Diggler quit the porn business and he has to follow Dirk everywhere. So he's just <laughs> this little right hand man. And oh. his face of outrage and horror, like he's about ready to punch Bobby Downey Sr. in the face for the sake of Dirk. There's a wedding snippet when um, Becky Barnett is getting married and uh, he can't even, he's cutting a piece of cake and the cake eat. is just like big and floppy on this God. plate. And so he just kind of goes up under it and just like shoves it all in his mouth. Like, oh, this guy can't even eat cake right. This is, oh, this is heartbreaking. And that, the most heartbreaking scene, I think one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the movie is the New Year's Eve party that he shows Dirk his new car. And then tries to kiss Dirk, and Dirk is like, what the hell, man? No! Like, I just want to kiss you. Can I please kiss you on the mouth? I really want to kiss you on the mouth. Like, no, you cannot do that. Oh, okay, cool. And you're like, buddy, like, there's there's a better man out there for you. Oh. Like, don't, don't go with this douchebag. <laughs> and he's also, like, filming the birth of Buck and Jesse's <laughs> kid, and he's just got, like, his huge camera, yeah. and he's getting right up in there, and oh. he's, like, kind of fascinated and disgusted at the same time, but he's, like, he's seen lots of vagina before, it's, like, yeah. fine, but, like, we've got this, like, crowning head coming out, and he's capturing every moment. Mm-hmm. Like, he, yeah, he's just so good. Oh, man, so many great things about this film. It's hard to count. I knew, like, when we were when we decided we we're going to do this one next, I honestly was a little scared. I'm like, oh, there's there's so many wonderful things to say about this film. I don't know how we're going to squeeze it down into something digestible. And we didn't. So. <laughs> yeah, we've definitely started reaching a bit of a limit. So possibly time to start safe wording out. Mm. But i don't know yeah the 80s the way that they treat the 1980s as just this depressing clusterfuck home video did bring us a lot but i would say ultimately that as we've learned now twice in a row porn is just better on eight millimeter (laughs) whenever life gets you down 
keeps you wearing a frown and the gravy train has left you behind and when you're all out of hope down at the end of your rope and nobody's there to throw you a line if you ever get so low that you don't know which way to go come on and take a walk in my shoes never worry about a thing got the world on a string cause i've got the cure for all of my blues i take a look at my enormous penis and my troubles start a melting away i take a look at my enormous penis and the happy times are coming to stay I gotta sing and I dance when I glance in my pants And the feeling's like a sunshiny day I take a look at my enormous penis And everything is going my way Feelings like a sunshiny day. been corrupted by capitalism. Space!